Hello! Before this episode starts, I just wanted to give you a quick content warning that this movie contains some elements of sexual violence that uh, we do discuss. We don't go into super graphic detail or anything like that, but we do talk about it. Uh, so if that kind of thing upsets you, you may not want to listen to this episode, or you may want to listen to this episode when you're in a different headspace. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, on with the show. Welcome back to Anime is for Jerks. My name is Cass. And I'm Alex. Uh, and this month, we are talking about Perfect Blue, directed by uh, Satoshi Kon and produced by Madhouse. Uh, Alex, I so I love this film. Uh, it's my second favorite Kon film. It's pretty close. Uh, what did you think about it? I was going uh, well, to be cute and make a joke that this is the first good feature length we watched for this show uh, but i can't agree with the fireflies like that also millennium actress i i'm ambi- i'm ambivalent about millennium actress it's come on you it's at least good <laughs> yes i mean it's it i would that's, that's, that. that's why that's why i was being that's why i said i was being cute um no this I'm is also... this, this, this is good this is this is far and away my favorite thing i've seen from satoshi khan I'm actually really, really surprised about that. I expected you, I expected you, to at least kind of dislike this movie. Really? What uh, is that? It's problematic in a number of ways that you've complained about movies being problematic before. I mean, it, like it. I mean, it has graphic depictions of sexual violence, but like, I f- like I feel like m- most of kind of the times when I like really go in on a film for it's like gender politics let's say it's like this film does not is not like perfect it is it blue though <laughs> but i i feel like it it is it's certainly less kind of like it's, it's certainly less clumsy less kind of like Really, the, Trent- di- the difference between this movie and Millennium Actress is that Millennium Actress has at least some positively portrayed male characters, whereas all of the men <laughs> in this movie are portrayed as sleazy assholes, and that's yeah. the way to please you. <laughs> hey, no, no, but like I, like I'm not sure which ones you had in mind, but like the ones I'm thinking of, where I, ki- I kind of like really went in on kind of portrayals of women, were like Devil Man Cry Baby, um. The Penguin one. Yeah, Penguin Highway. I was also, I mean, I wasn't mostly thinking about the gender politics. I was thinking about the fat phobia in this movie. Oh, uh, yeah, that sucks, too. It's bad. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that because it happens just right at the very end of the movie. Um, so, yes. So, this is a movie about uh, a woman named uh, Mila who uh, is a, she's a pop idol in a trio called Cham. Um, and she decides to quit being a pop idol to be an actress in a in a drama series um well yeah she she quits to kind of pivot her career into being a serious actress and mm. her first her first um kind of real recurring role is on this this um 
this thriller series. Yes, called The Double Bind. Um, and yeah, so she, uh, so yeah, so, and there's this whole conversation between her, she has two managers, um, Udumi, uh, one, one of her managers wants her to remain a pop idol, and then her other manager, whose name I forget. Tadakoro. Uh, yes, Tadakoro. Uh, yeah, and and importantly, Rumi is an ex-idol herself. Yes. And, and so she has a lot of, in, in in more ways than it appears at first she sees herself in uh mima um so yeah so she uh she goes up on stage to perform her last show and they they perform their uh their like hit song i forget what it's called um but it's uh they they do say its name but i I forget what it is and it, it plays like a significant role in like the soundtrack and like some later moments um and it is kind of a bop I gotta say, it's a pretty good song. Yeah, I um, remember it being good. Um, and so they finish playing that song, and then she's like, "Oh!" She goes to make her announcement, and then like a fucking fist fight breaks out in the crowd. <laughs> yeah. So so there's so we see we see this like really fucking weird looking security guard. Um, he's like. So we see the the guards are kind of like crouched down at the at the at like the barrier wall, keeping them the freaks from um, getting cl- close to the stage. And he's kind of like looking at uh, Mima and holding his hand so that like it looks like she's walking on his hand. And yeah, one of the one of the weird things about this film is just like how hard they lead and just into this guy being physically gruesome. Yeah. It's like it's so unnecessary. I mean, the, the um, there was an essay I read, the one that I will look at in the show notes that that seemed to think this was a deliberate kind of reference to early kind of gothic villain archetypes. I definitely like. I I definitely see a connection between like his design and the design of like Nosferatu and stuff right, like that, right. where like. And it's like it's a very sort of like early twentieth century kind of horror monster where like you communicate that they're the monster by making it just like a really fucked up looking guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and like it 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 reads as co- like it's it's the sort of thing that's common and like but also fairly obvious. And I think what's this movie does subvert it slightly by focusing a lot on him as the villain, and then there's sort of a slight subversion at the end when it turns right. out that he's only one of two villains, and, yep. and not and and he was kind of being um, puppeteered yeah. to some extent as well. Yeah. So like, yeah. So uh, I guess we'll we'll say like, the other the other main villain of this movie is is Rumi, and she is not presented until the very end of the movie as a threatening figure yeah it's um, it's a it's a huge kind of like twist at the yeah. end when and she she's not drawn a, like like you're meant to think that she's super hot or whatever but she's also not right. drawn part- in a way that makes her look particularly ugly until the very end of the movie when they feel the need to yeah. hammer home that she's the monster by drawing her like super fat or whatever right right um, they, like she's like she's a middle-aged woman who used to be an idol and has gained a bit of weight unsurprisingly yeah but yeah then they don't but they don't really like make her fatness a thing until Until, the end when she's a bad when she's 
suddenly yeah. a bad person and 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 they use the fat to emphasize that which and is this extremely is yeah gross. and this is something that we also complain about in paprika uh which is know, which does it on a on a much like worse it's way grosser because it takes up a much larger proportion of the movie yeah. um and also paprika has much less much much fewer redeeming qualities to it <laughs> yeah uh you know like perfect blue like i'm willing to forgive stuff like that because the movie is so good whereas paprika is it's it's a lot less forgivable millennium or, actress the reason millennium actress is my favorite because it doesn't have any of that shit that is that is true it's, satoshi Kon managed uh, to control himself for he, 80 yeah, minutes he managed to not be a complete freak um but um, anyways so the one yeah the one, one thing that you meant now that you mention um rumi's appearance um the one thing that she does share with um mimania as we'll call him uh is the kind of their like their eyes are slightly yeah their eyes are too far apart yeah um, they, they do they they make their eyes look a bit kind of off and you can definitely um like if you compare their faces like that's definitely like the thing that they both share in common and that makes them just sort of look like you're not from around here are you um yeah just not use of like physical appearance to generate to try and like instill a sense of unease which is like it sucks it's yeah yeah because it's it's also it's like actually way more interesting if the villain isn't so obvious from their physical appearance yeah. you know like yeah, in addition to it being less mean to people whose faces don't look conventionally attractive right, right for right. any number of reasons um but yeah so we we got on this tangent because um this this guy who doesn't have a real name but he uh, he calls himself uh mimania uh the wiki Wikipedia article dis- says that his name is Mamoru Uchida. Okay. Uh, uh, he, but so he's working as a part-time security guard, and he um, tries to keep these 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 rowdy rowdy kids from um, causing a scene at the show, and they and they end up um, getting in a fight with him and causing a whole scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's like a whole thing where they're like they're throwing cans at each other, and um, <laughs> yeah. and Mima tells Mima tells them to stop, and then she they they announce that that she's going to be leaving, and they perform one last song, and then she gets she leaves, she gets on the train, um, and then we get the the argument scene between uh, Mima's producers um, or her her agents. Uh, oh, about how how she only has like one line in. Yeah, uh, in the episode. Yeah, and so, then we get, we see, and then we go back to her room, uh, to her apartment. Uh, you know, she talks to her mom on the phone, um, about like how the pop idol image was suffocating her, and her mom being like, "Oh, didn't you? You know, you took all those singing lessons. Didn't you go to Tokyo because you wanted to sing? You know, um, you know, setting up this sort of theme of like her self doubt and her, um." Her being surrounded by people who are like sort of questioning and second guessing her decisions and encouraging her to second guess her own decisions, yeah. um, and then she gets a threatening fax. Of, well, yeah. So well, let's see. So first, so yeah, when she retires, she she gets like a last like handful of of letters, and one mentions um, 
that they 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 watch her on Mima's room. Yeah, and has, they have a web a web URL. Yeah, I visit. They say I vi- I visit Mima's room all the time. Here's a link. Uh, is that before or after the facts? That is, I think, before the facts. Okay. Because this, I mean, it's not. It's not really important because. Like this film is constructed yeah. in a very like the the way the way individual scenes kind of jump back and forth. There's a lot. There's especially in the second half, it's not always clear if something is literally happening, if something yeah. is something that Mima is imagining, or if it's something that is happening on the show that she's in, or if she's imagining the show. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, strict, strict, like continuity isn't, isn't, um, super important, but yeah, what, the, what matters is that, yeah, she gets this weird URL and then she and also, then threatening facts. this threatening facts, she says traitor my, over and over. Yes. My favorite side, side note here. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite things about the Japanese language is that, and you can see this on the facts. It's like the biggest thing on the facts is that the, the most Vanilla ordinary way to say traitor in Japanese is uragimono, which literally means backstabber. Nice. Um, uh, but yeah, so she gets uh, it. It says tra- it says traitor in a bunch of different ways uh, on the thing. Like the mo- the biggest one is the the three kanji uh, uragimono, and then it says it in katakana and in hiragana a few times. Um, yeah, and so then she, uh, so yeah, so Mima then goes to the shoot for the her her exciting new television role, and asks uh, Rumi about this uh, <laughs> this this URL that she's been given, um, and is like, oh, what is this? And then <laughs> Rumi's like, it's an internet homepage. And Mima's like, oh, that thing that's been popular lately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 97 baby let's uh, learn about the internet on our macintosh performa yeah get on uh, netscape navigator and and sail the high seas yeah so so yeah so then there's a, a yeah. scene this doesn't quite have the same level of like it, like early computer nostalgia as uh serial experiments lane did yeah there's definitely but... some overlap in terms of like the concerns that they have i guess I'm yeah like, and that's and that's and that's something like that um it uses the internet to, to talk about kind of um kind of not just voyeurism but like obsession with celebrity and um like surveillance yeah and, and like and, the thing that it's it's specifically asking is a question that i think a lot of people wouldn't start worrying about until like 20 years later which is like what if somebody pretends to be you on the internet and says a bunch of stuff that you don't agree with Right, you know, right. which is something that like just happens now. That's a thing that happens sometimes, and like, you know, it was it was pretty rare for for movies to be worrying about that sort of stuff way back in the day. Like there were some true, yeah. Western techno thrillers. Um, the only one that I can think of, because like there's like hackers, but hackers is a very like uh, sort of abstracted idea of computer hacking. It has <laughs> yeah. it has no relationship to reality. Um, but there's the Sandra Bullock movie The Net with uh, Mozart's Ghost and Pizza dot, Pizza dot Net. Oh my god, um, I haven't seen that, that movie. Is that movie is very silly, um, and um, 
But yeah, that movie features Sandra Bullock being stalked over the internet, if I recall correctly. Okay. Um, you know, so it's it's something that that did crop up, but mm-hmm. I it's it's relatively uncommon. Yeah. Um, you know, but like this this movie is for a movie that's not really about the internet, surprisingly prescient about future issues that would involve uh that would go on with the internet. Um, anyway, so yeah, so we get this scene where um Mima's co-stars shoot a, uh, a scene about uh this the serial killer and the tv show uh, which is is they're the one that they're describing is basically just a uh, buffalo bill from silence of the lambs yeah uh, i was gonna say is like they they talk about this serial ki- like uh he kills uh, he kills yeah. women and the lady detective is like um like why does he do it and then uh um, why does he why does the culprit peel the skin off his victims you know yeah. it's, it's literally just buffalo bill um and so so when, yeah. yeah so um we mentioned the uh fat phobia so here's satoshi khan at least at least gesturing at his future weirdness about trans people it's like the thing is is that like the show is presented as being sort of hacky and unoriginal um in the way that it's it's written like i think that one there's absolutely a zero percent chance that satoshi Kon wrote that not as an intention as, as an un, like not intentionally oh, referencing silence right. of the lambs. that's true like i'm 100 yeah. percent certain that satoshi Kon knows what the silence of the lambs is yeah, yeah, um, yeah you know like like landing on that exact setup um you know so i i think he's that line and then because immediately afterwards uh, the actress playing the the lead role uh, is asks the screenwriter who's the criminal, and he says, "Oh, I can't tell you that it spoil the fun." And then as he's walking away, one of the producers is like, "So what are you going to do about the criminal? You're going to have to make your mind up soon." Yeah. It's very funny. So like, I I really do think that that whole sequence is meant to paint him as sort of a hack. That's that's um, fair. That's fair. Um, uh, but... Yeah, and then uh, Mima's male producer talks to the screenwriter. The, the one who wants her to be an actress and and he's like oh that's no problem like like is like oh she should have more than one line uh, and the screenwriter's like oh but she's a pop idol they're really hard to use and he's like no 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 she's done with being a pop idol um and then uh a male bomb explodes in his hand so yeah so so, so one of the big big shot producers came in with the screenwriter and he was handing the lead actress her fan mail then he was like, oh, this one's not for you. And it turns out it's for Mima. And so he gives it to Mima's uh, manager that, uh, and it turns out to be a bomb. Yes. Uh, oh, my God. JC, a bomb. And yeah, it, it, it he opens it rather than uh, Mima and it blows up and fucks up his hands. Yeah. And then a note comes out and it says, this is a warning. The next one will be real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. And then we get a scene with uh, so, Mima and Rumi talking about the the mail bomb, and she's like, because Rumi comes over to Mima's apartment to like set up her Macintosh and te- yeah, try to use yeah. The I was gonna ask when that when that happened. Uh, and and so they're talking about about this stuff, and uh, Mima's like, oh, shouldn't we have called? Uh, shouldn't we have called the police? And on this viewing, I was like, wait a minute, no one ha- did. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, on the one hand, like no one did, but like okay whatever he's a stubborn asshole surely when he got to the hospital and had been blown up somebody at the hospital would be like hey how'd you get blown up <laughs> yeah like so like what what rumi says is that uh he tadokoro didn't yeah. want to call the police 
um, like Rumi, as we will later learn, is not a reliable source of information. So uh, yeah. exactly what happened. Um, but ha- yeah, it, if however the police did end up getting involved <laughs> is 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 it's a mystery for the ages for yeah. sure. um anyway so then uh we learn about how to browse the internet we load up netscape navigator and Rumi's like oh you double click on the on the thingy and then you enter the url here and then mima's like can't you explain it to me in japanese (laughs) yeah she's just like what um yeah she's she's astonished uh uh but then after Rumi leaves she um goes and Yes. To this what this URL that was given to her in that in that fan letter, and uh, it's a, like a personal blog pretending to be her. Yeah, this is a sequence that it didn't make any sense to me until just now. What was going on? Uh, which is that so he the fan is like, oh, I put up a link to it. Here's the link to Mima's room to her, and she's like and. As the fan assumes that Mima's room is a blog written by her, which, and then at this moment, it struck me as weird that he would give her a link to a blog that he assumes is written by her. And then I realized just now, no, what he said was he linked to her page from his page, which is a thing that people used to do back when oh, people had home pages. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So yes. I for, yeah, I forgot. She, so she puts in like a URL, and it has like a, it's like a, it's like a blog roll, basically. Yes, she goes to angelnet.co.jp, which I from I I assume was like some kind of Japanese geocities or like something an angel like that. Fire, angel Fire was a like yes, a, yeah, and then yeah. she yeah, from yeah from that portal she finds a link to her quote unquote blog. Yeah, because if you I'm looking at the URL right now and it's like angelnet.co.jp slash tilde yoshi. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Um, see. Yeah. See. I. I think. Yeah. I, I hadn't made that connection together. I think I thought it was um, the creepy dude who had handed it to him, um, because his kind of like thing is that he thinks there's like a real Mima. Yeah. Who still who still uh, is wants to a, be a pop idol or wants to be a pop idol and that this Mima is is like the betrayer. Um, and so, so yeah, so yeah, no, and yeah, until you clarified that, I, I would have said it was him who gave it to her being like, here's Mima, Mima asterisk. Uh, no, it's, it's, yeah, right. it's just, a, it's just, it's, pure it's, it's, just, it's just, it's just a random fan who, who did this thing. Her, what he thinks is yeah. her blog on his blog. Basically like, oh, I give you, I give you a, a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> on my Remember, blog. Yeah. Because people used to on their home, people nobody knew what to do with the internet. People used to have yeah, a page yeah. on their website, just like here's a bunch of links to pages that cool I think links. are cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool links. Uh, anyway, I mean, so yeah, was, no, like when I was like like thirteen or something, like for Christmas, my parents got, like you know remember those page day calendars? Uh, I I I've, I don't think I've ever owned a page day calendar, okay. but I know what they are. Yeah, no, I got one that was just like a cool website every day. <laughs> Like that was that was that was what was happening. And I, like, I would love to go through that and see how many of those are dead links. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can. I'll see if I can find it. 
Um, but yeah, and then yeah, and then there's a blog with like all sorts of like details about her life that none of whom, none of which she wrote, including the fact that she just loves cow brand milk. Yeah, and and like all these like incredibly small details, like how she always uh, steps out of the subway with her right foot. Yeah, uh, and st- yeah, things that no one could po- should possibly be able to know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's far more than just a fan pretending to be her. It's a fan who is pretending to be her and somehow has access to correct, extremely detailed information about her life. Yeah. Um, and yeah and of course like if you think hard enough about it you'll realize who the only person who that could be is um but like the way the the way the show is with the show the way the movie is set up it's around this time or a little after that she starts kind of having hallucinations or yeah she she's her 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 mental state starts deteriorating soon after this and so and so one one like conclusion that the movie kind of lets you make if if um is that like maybe she wrote it herself and doesn't realize um and so it so it kind of it it's despite the fact that as we find out at the end uh, with the big twist this was um Rumi feeding this information to the creep who wrote the blog yeah cuz uh, Rumi was pretending to be the real Mima, yeah, talking to Mimania, right, right, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so she act, she kind of fed his delusions by yeah. saying like, "I'm the real uh, Mima, and and you need to get rid of this 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 faker." Um, but yeah, until we until that big reveal, um, like the fact that the, 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 you have this hyper specific information just adds to kind of the sense of unreality about the whole thing, and like it. It does. It doesn't. It, it doesn't kind of demand kind of like a rational explanation at first, like a like a like a kind of more traditional thriller would, because yeah. it's framed in it's framed within her own deteriorating like sense of of reality. Yeah, and on top of that, like I think it's a perfectly reasonable explanation. Like you could say, like, oh well, is somebody is this guy just stalking her to that degree? Because that's also right, rather creepy. Right. Right. Like that, that too. You know, like it's it's uh, not not super obvious how this could possibly be especially because urumi is not presented threateningly in any way right right. um so yeah so then we get um we get a scene of some of the idol otaku complaining about devil bind um and about how all psycho thrillers made in japan turn out like this (laughs) um which is it's funny because this perfectly is a psycho thriller made in japan um and they talk about how somebody should save Mima. Uh, and then creepy dude Mimania is uh, watching them from behind the... Uh, taking from notes. Behind a, from behind a bookshelf taking taking notes about how somebody should save Mima. And then Mima is taking the train home and sees an ad for making a homepage on the internet and has a panic attack. Um, which is how I also feel about <laughs> making a homepage on the internet. <laughs> A website. Imagine the the mere concept of websites <laughs> making you panic. I mean, I feel like how, it, how prescient was this movie? Right, right. In a time when nobody panicked about websites, it was imagining in the future websites will cause psychogenic distress. <laughs> and they were right. They were they were right. They were more right than they could possibly know. Yeah. Um. Uh, so my next notes are about 
that scene. That scene, yes. Uh, I don't. So yeah. What, so did, did, is there anything we need to cover beforehand? I, I'm going through my screenshots real quick. So yes, she she passes by the idol otaku and Mimania out waiting outside of the studio, and she doesn't talk to any of them. They're like, oh, do they all get unfriendly when they become actresses? Right, um, right. Yeah. And then we have we have the big argument about the the rape scene, which is so basically there's a big argument between uh, Mima's producers about because the screenwriter wrote this scene in which she gets raped and is like and then her uh what's his name uh tarakoro uh he's like he's like oh yeah she should definitely do it because like this is how she matures this is how she, people they people will see her as something other than like just the, something other than a pop idol and then rumi doesn't really doesn't want it uh to happen and in, in this scene rumi comes across as like she's looking out for um, for Mima's best interest because yeah. it's a pretty messed up thing to ask somebody to do. Right, and, um, and especially, especially the way he frames it as like this is kind of like the, a way to... the price that you gotta pay. And also like the idea of like the bit about maturity and how like yeah. like this like shows you like serious about like which is yeah which is yeah extremely fucked and it's up a re- it's a completely real thing that happens like like especially as like young artists who got famous when mm-hmm. they were younger mm-hmm. um you know as teenagers or as children become adults like a thing that a lot of them wind up doing is doing stuff like this like not necessarily appearing in a rape scene but like doing sexy stuff and it's sort of like a rite of passage of like doing a you know if you're a musician like doing a music video like a super horny music video or something like that when you turn 18 or whatever in order to advertise that like not a a kid anymore or whatever yeah i'm not a kid anymore you're a a serious you're a serious artist yeah and like and it's it's definitely something that like i i know i've read about this stuff before but like in hollywood and stuff like that like um people seeing like uh actresses seeing like or being told that like doing nude scenes in movies is just like it's how it's like the price you got to pay for being an actress you know like if you refuse to do that people aren't going to work aren't going to want to work with you mm-hmm. um you know like and and there's a fine line between like nude scenes and sex scenes and stuff like that in movies that are there for like a, a decent reason uh, and nude scenes and sex scenes that are there because the director wants to see a hot young actress naked. Yeah. Um, there's a scene so, yeah, where... So she, so she says, I, I'm going to do the scene. Yeah, so she agrees yeah, she agrees to do the scene. She's like, it's not a big deal. Like, it's not like I'm actually going to be getting raped. Like, it's just a, it's just a, a scene in a movie. Uh, it's just a scene in a TV show. It's not going to be that bad. Um, and... Uh, yeah, because part it, of the it, argument, it end up, it ends up being kind of bad. It ends up being kind of bad. There's a, a the, the scene. So yeah, so the scene is like she's at a strip club, and so, she so gets yeah, her, raped by the customer. So yeah, her character in the show, yeah, starts off a, a bit part. She's the sister of one of the murder victims, um, but yeah. then p- partly through her manager's finagling and partly through the screenwriter being a hack piece of shit uh she gets elevated into a major role and undergoes yeah. this bizarre kind of transformation which ends yeah. up somehow with her performing at a strip club 
Yeah, and, uh, and, and like the way that she's going to get transformed into a major character in the second half of the show is through this rape scene. Somehow, like the exact plot mechanics and plot of like the the show within a show in this movie are not set are not established and aren't super important they're not important no right. they're, they're it's just like basically like this is this is and it's seen it like and i think it's it's very effective this way because it's it's like this sort of like sex scene and this sort of violence and stuff like that is seen as like the transition into quote-unquote maturity you know right. and like w- w- part of what i love about this movie so much is the degree of sort of complexity that there is in this aspect because simultaneously the people who are pushing her to this quote-unquote maturity are scumbags and they're forcing her to do something super awful um for basically no reason yeah it's like like we we talked before about about the the line between like a scene involving sex and or violence that's like that's like has some like purpose like yeah and and the the kind of gratuitousness and like like it's 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 like a misery porn bit this like like it's obviously the way the way the way it's it's done this is not a like worthwhile scene in a worthwhile tv show it's gross exploitative garbage yeah and like and i want to be clear that like on the i i have a bit of a complex opinion on this subject because like there are a lot of people out there who really don't like any sex scene that doesn't have like a clear narrative purpose and i'm not that sort of person i've tried to be open on this podcast when i when there's been sexy erotic stuff in tv shows that i've enjoyed and like for instance we talked about lupin the third uh the one yeah, called Fijiko yeah, yeah i think the stuff in that show is genuinely hot like it's mostly not doesn't serve any narrative purpose but i think it's good because yeah, it's there, not there's offensive a, to my sensibilities yeah, there, and there's, there's a yeah there's another there's yeah there's kind of a like a related but not entirely like um it's not the it's yeah there's a, there's a there's a related thing which is that like it's fine to have like in in some way in in some cases it's fine to have sex for the sake of sex uh, yeah. i mean that's what porn is but like there there are like in porn there is like gross exploitative like yeah stuff and stuff that isn't so like yeah so so there's it's possible to have a scene in a movie or a tv show that is just there because it's fun to look at boobs (laughs) but is also not like gross and like leering you know there's a distinction between sort of like leering and gross stuff and like like actually erotic yes i mean stuff 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 that kind of reifies like misogynist like views of women and like and stuff that doesn't yeah and Uh, i think that this this movie is really interesting in that it's it it like this scene is not we we were talking about it being like a scene written by a scumbag and stuff like that like it's like it's 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 sort of complicated i guess in the sense that we one we're not given a ton of information about the show and it's and it's sequence and also like mima is 
of two minds, I think, about participating in this because there's a scene a bit later after this happens where she, like, you know, falls over on her bed and screams right. into her pillow. Of course, I didn't want to do it while she's crying, but also simultaneously at this point, she's beginning to, like, sort of disconnect from reality. She, yeah, th- and it's. She starts to, like, maybe dissociate near the end of it. Yeah, yeah but- and she's she's like. She's starting to disconnect from reality as a as a result of like all of these people around her telling her different things to think about herself and like and and being so unsure of what she herself wants that it's difficult to take that declar either the declaration that she's okay with doing it mm-hmm. before the scene or the declaration that she didn't want to do it the whole time after the scene it's difficult to take either of them at face value because they're both made in a sort of mental state where she's I mean, I think, not sure what she wants. I think, I mean, I think I would say they're both true. Like that, yeah. like, I mean, because, because this like show is about kind of um, how we can present and construct multiple personas um, yeah. that I like, it, there's no contradiction in that. Like she thought it was she going in, like she thought it'd be worthwhile and like fine um and like immediately afterwards when when totokoro was driving her home she like she also seemed fine um it wasn't until she saw she found her dead fish um that that kind that kind of that kind of um prompted her initial I think what's interesting about the scene is that the scene itself, the filming actually doesn't go that bad. Like it looks upsetting and stuff it like is, that. And it, but is, like, it is upsetting to watch. It uh, is upset. It, it is upsetting to watch. But like she's acting, and there's there's a great moment where they have to reset the cameras from the first part of the scene to the second part oh, of the scene. Yeah. And the dude who's supposed to be raping her leans in and says, "Oh, I'm sorry," and she says, "That's ah, fine." <laughs> um, like it's and it, it, like. That was something that struck me on this particular rewatch was like in the past, I remembered this scene is actually being a lot worse mm. and a lot more tr- immediately traumatizing. Mm. But I actually think that it's possible to read it as not actually that negative of an experience for her, but who it is a very negative experience for is Rumi. Yeah. Yeah. She starts crying and gets up and leaves. Um, and I think that something that's really interesting is that, and, and she, she reads on, the Mima's Room blog that Rumi is having me mania write about how she hated doing the scene and stuff like that and like having this information entering her head of like another person pretending to be her having these feelings about it and her being in a mental place where she's not quite capable of distinguishing between what other people think about her and what she thinks about her uh, and what she thinks about it like that's true you know like she's in this position where like I think you can definitely like that declaration that she oh i hated the entire experience or oh after the experience she realized that she regretted it is like something that she starts experiencing because rumi is right and yeah 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 so that yeah like room like in a sense like rumi and tadakoro are kind of like two extremes like tadakoro like doesn't really care much about her emotional state everything is kind of like a way to kind of get her a to become a bigger star and get him more money. Whereas Rumi is very nostalgic for like her idol days and, and um, thinks that everything that deviates from that is, is horrible. And so, yeah, so, so, so she kind of, uh, Mima herself kind of 
goes back and forth between these two extremes. Like when she's with Tadokoro, like after, when he drives her home, she acts perfectly fine. She's just kind of like jokes and smiles. Um, and then, but yeah, like, but then um, she kind of swings to the other end too. So there's definitely a sense of her being kind of alienated from what she actually feels about the experience. And uh, the, we, it's possible that we never really know because at this point she like her herself is so splintered yeah and like it, 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 that's sort of what i i really like about this movie it, it it doesn't i think come down on one side or the other it's that the conflict is the point it's dialectics baby <laughs> um uh, because in the scene with the fish where she comes home and sees her dead fish and then she looks at she sees her reflection in the commu- in the computer monitor uh, like her reflection of her image of herself as an idol, which has been sort of haunting her, um, and it's and she and the reflection says, "Is that the job that you wanted?" That was the pit, and then she throws a, a pillow at the screen, and the reflection goes away, and then it cuts to Me Mania writing on the uh, Mima's room diary blog. Um, about how like oh the producer is a total pervert my role is really screwed up singing in front of my fans has got to be the best for me after all and I think the juxtaposition of these images is meant to sort of convey that like her distaste for this is not it's not ingenuine to her it's like it's not like a genuine feeling that she has but it's also not entirely separate from what other people feel about her and from what other people are saying about her Um, yeah um and yeah, this is um, it in in the essay that that I skimmed. Um, it's it says that it's that the film suggests that Rumi is drugging her at this point, or mm. um, it it seems to think that it's it's more that it that that is kind of like textually unambiguous by the end of the show of the movie. I never picked up on that. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I think... Like, I I don't... Like, that doesn't strike... Like, because there's no... There's no sequence in which anything like that is shown. Right. I was, like, I was trying... Go back, trying to remember. Like, is there anything... Like, the only... I don't remember any... any Her, like, handing her anything to drink. I only... The only thing I can remember at all involving food or water is... Um, when Rumi comes over and they have cake together, uh, yeah, and that like yeah, and that, but at the point of the fish sequence, right? The Rumi's only been to her apartment to set up her computer. Yeah, yeah. So it uh, that might be that might just be them misinterpreting I th- something. I think it's a. I think that's a bit of a reach because if if that were the intended textual like reading by the end of the movie i feel like there would be more sequences of Rumi giving her things to eat or giving like anything like that like anything to sort of reinforce Rumi's control over her life where there just really isn't right right um you know like like i don't think yeah um yeah i i'm not sure yeah like because like i i mean i don't think it's i don't think that would even necessarily be a good like addition either because no. like um that would end like it's it's 
already kind of it already was kind of jarring at least for me watching this for the first time how at the end it turns out that like uh some of her hallucinations are based in reality in insofar as Rumi is kind of acting out her alter ego and that um the evil Mima isn't completely a figment of imagination to, to like to go further and say that like she had like all of her hallucinations were just like chemically induced or whatever i think that would undermine some of the ideas of how kind of like celebrity culture and um like being a like a high profile actress can require you to like put up these kind of personas and how it can affect your kind of like understanding of yourself and so to to kind of introduce this idea of just like that her um psychological that psychological aspect of it was just kind of like drugs that seems like yeah a bad a bad way to <laughs> a bad thing to do yeah uh, and Rumi like like the thing is is that we described Rumi as like the villain of the movie but like one of the things about this movie is that, like, there's nobody in it who isn't culpable for Mima's, like, torment, basically. Right. Like, Rumi is the one who kind of gets focused on, but it's, it's like, nobody helps her. Yeah. No, everybody yeah. just sort of screws her over, and, and, tr and like, this is a movie about right. I mean Mima getting sort of chewed up and spit out by the the japanese television which, industry yeah which, which is why i i thought it, i found it so surprising that she, by the at the end she seems to be relatively okay the end of the i i described the end previously and i've just i've said this previously the last two seconds of this movie are the most tonally bizarre of any yeah. like ending to any movie ever we'll get there it's weird it, um <laughs> But yeah, like she really has no support. Uh, like we were talking about the kind of um, workplace uh, dynamics of the rape scene, and like the the actor opposite her, tr like does his best to be like, I know this is f kind of fucked up, uh, and I'm sorry for that. But outside of that, like we you don't see any staff or anything kind of making sure the actors are kind of like feeling comfortable and yeah. like in a good place doing this like upsetting scene and so yeah, yeah that, ultimately nobody gives a shit about right her. exactly and you and, know like like because she's she's not important like Rumi thinks that she gives a shit about her but she only gives a shit about herself yeah. Tarakoro at the very least has no illusions that he gives a shit about her <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and and yeah I think Rumi ends up kind of getting getting framed as the big bad because partly because like well because the other the screenwriter and Tarakoro are dead by yeah, the end of the movie yeah <laughs> it's all, the main reason all, all the men have have have, have died uh yeah. and and as we mentioned before Rumi gets villainized in sort of like grossly misogynist ways uh yeah. by like emphasizing emphasizing her her weight um 
and her kind of like just yeah what's the word i don't know but um yeah the, but for lack of conventional attractiveness yeah uh but the, yeah the, the point is that everyone is trying to use mima in some way um so yeah so then after the, after the rape scene we get a, a montage of mima doing tv interviews and being like oh I, I i would be lying if i didn't said i didn't have any hesitations but i looked at it as a hurdle i had to jump over as an actress um and uh with MECB the idol otaku from before talking about you know uh how all the, the mimarin fans are gonna be so so pissed about this and like oh i heard the ratings went up as always the public at large are all idiots um you know and her talking about how she wants to be re- recognized as an actress and there's there's a great scene there's a great shot this movie has a lot in this specific way in common with end of evangelion in that it uses typical anime fan service shots as a weapon of condemnation against mm. the audience uh and and like perverts in general i don't think that perfect blue is in particular criticizing its audience the way that if end of Evo was criticizing its audience but criticizing specifically the way that but Perfect Blue is criticizing specifically the way that idols and and, and women are treated by the Japanese entertainment industry. Yeah. Um, and, like, because in, in End of Ava, there's a sequence where... Uh, it's a sequence with, um, like, at, right after the second, the third impact, and uh, where Shinji is talking to Misato while she's having sex, and he she tells him to just, like, deal with it. And then uh, there's a bunch of shot, And then it's sort of this whole like sort of montage sequence of all of the girls telling him of Chinji basically being like, but I'm such a nice guy. And all the girls telling him, <laughs> telling him like, maybe you should think about other people for once in your life. And then there's the sequence where, um, he gets into a big fight with Asuka. Um, and you know, she goes, she's like pathetic. And, yeah. and that, that whole sequence, that whole sequence has a ton of shots of all of the girls, like, boobs and asses and their legs and like tons of like classic anime fan service shots while all of the girls are just berating shinji uh-huh. for being such a pervert <laughs> <laughs> like and there's a great scene in this movie that reminds me of that um where she's doing an interview where she's talking about um like she's like oh i'd like to be recognized as an actress but sham did teach me a lot it was a great experience in its own way um, and while she's saying that, she's she's talking about how she wants to be recognized as an actress. She's talking about how she wants to be recognized as like an artist and a whole person and stuff like that. And the camera is just like panning oh, up right. her legs and her boobs. Right, right. Um, it's so it's so good. It's so it's just this perfect yeah. thing of just like she's, she's talking about how she wants to be seen as like a mature whole person, and literally the only thing the camera cares about is her tits. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's see it. Is is this see so yeah this is around when she um, goes back to visit Cham and when they're doing no the- that's a little bit that's a little bit later oh, okay. this, what happens next after this is that she she goes home and she reads the blog about um, how oh everyone's forcing me to do it it's the screenwriter's fault right, and right, they right, write right. like help over and over and over again in the page and Mima's like I this isn't true I'm not writing any of this. Um, uh, and then on the screen appears this image of idol Mima uh, and says, of course, the real Mima is writing this. I know that deep down in your heart, you want to be a pop idol again. You're a filthy woman now. Nobody likes idols with tarnished reputations. You know, you can't step back into the spotlight now. Um, and she, you know, she calls her filthy and tarnished. And then she she disappears down the street. Um, and then we get the... 
uh, scene where the screenwriter gets killed. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, God, this is one of my favorite. In any, like, horror thriller movie, this has got to be just, like, the best kill scene <laughs> of all time. Uh, like, I love it so much. So, like, the screenwriter, he, like, parks his car in his, like, apartment parking garage or something like that. Uh, screenwriter's name is... God, what is his name? Uh, I have no idea. Um, um, that's the that's uh, all I know. Sakuragi, I think. Then I, I think it might be Sakuragi. Um, and he, uh, so he parks his car, and uh, no, he's parking at the studios because he parks at, and there's like a, a thing there that says double bind, uh, and there's like blood all over it. Um, and you can hear her Mima's like Sham, the hit song that was playing at the beginning, like their sort of signature hit. Um, playing sort of in the distance and then he's like what is that what is that noise and then he walks over to the elevator he hits the button and then the doors open and there's a boombox in there playing the song extremely loudly and there's a great like it's so it's, there's so much restraint in this bit where it cuts from that and then it cuts to several floors up the doors open yeah. and he's dead on the floor and the song is blasting and there's blood everywhere and his eyes have been pulled out yeah. like it's so it is wild good. it is such a good shot um yeah i mean the, like something we haven't really touched on um just because there's a lot else to talk about just the like the cinematography is fantastic oh, yeah. The cinematography, the editing, like, uh, Satoshi Kon is the sort of rare director who edits his own movies. Uh. Um, and he, like, he, his storyboarding process for his movies is absolutely meticulous. Oh, yeah. When I was, yeah, we, there's an article that you showed me about, yes. about com comparing, or not comparing, but just kind of doing the rundown on, like, did Aronofsky totally rip off Satoshi Kon? And the answer is yes. Uh, yeah, and it, yes, it, this is uh, a story called "The Real History of Perfect Blue and Requiem for a Dream" uh, from the Substack Animation Obsessive, uh, and this came out just a, a couple days, just a, like a week ago. And yeah, um, there's and that I, bit I was of like, oh, thank God. There's that, there's that bit with his storyboards that he does himself, uh, and yes, I didn't know he also edited the. Yeah, and he, yeah, his storyboards are extreme because Con. We've, and we talked about this before when we talked about Paprika and we talked about Millennium Actress. Um, Kahn's has a very specific style of editing that he mostly took from, uh, I believe his main inspiration was the George Roy Hill film adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five. Interesting. Um, and that movie, which makes perfect sense when you watch that movie and if you know Slaughterhouse-Five, um, because what that movie does... So Slaughterhouse-Five is about a... World War II veteran who named Billy Pilgrim who experiences his PTSD flashbacks as though he's sort of literally teleporting through time. Right. Um, and the and Fahrenheit four fifty the Fahrenheit Fahrenheit for, <laughs> Slaughterhouse Slaughterhouse Five uh, the the George Roy Hill movie depicts this using a lot of match cuts and uh. like intercutting two periods of time and stuff like that and that sort of and the same sort of stuff that Satoshi Kon does but Kon does it he one he makes it into his entire aesthetic yeah like all of his movies make these extensive use of match edits and like this specific thing that he does where in this movie and in um, Millennium Actress, where he will cut to a flashback, but not indicate that what you're seeing is supposed to be a flashback. Mm -hmm. um, like, like the common thing 
uh, the the common sort of way that flashbacks get used is that you'll often like this is the way that like Lost does flashbacks, which is the, uh, something that's been copied a lot since Lost. Um, is like there will be somebody will say something that um, tr- triggers a memory, and then there will be like an audio lead of a couple of seconds yeah. of the audio from the flashback, and then it will cut to the flashback. And then we'll cut back. And so, like, it clearly indicates with the way that it's edited that the thing that you're seeing is something that's not happening after the thing that you just saw, but it's something that happened in the past and that we're flashing back It's like training wheels editing. It's like, it's like, hold hold the viewers. Like, something that struck me, like, when I was watching um, High Life by Claire Dennis, uh, and, like, her, that film in White Material, which is another of her films, like, off there, there are large sections that are largely dialogue free, and they play with time, and they and they often like involve flashbacks. But like because she has such control over like the story she's telling, it's like she doesn't need to use those tricks. Uh, yeah. It's it's very clear what's going on, even without like overbearing audio cues or dialogue or or t- two years ago. Uh, yeah, and and here, especially in Perfect Blue, like Satoshi Kon, sometimes encourages this disorientation because that's yes. the nature of the film. But yeah. but like, uh, it it can it can go either way, and it's it's a skilled like director who can who can like carry the audience the way they want, um, with with kind of like simpler tools in a sense. Yeah, the because um, like the Millennium Actress and Perfect Blue use a lot of the same visual tricks in terms and like editing tricks in terms of stuff. But Millennium Actress does it because it's trying to have fun, basically. <laughs> like Millennium Actress is a is a fun time yeah, and it's supposed yeah. to be a wild romp, and that's why that's how it uses all of those tricks is to tell jokes and to like create a sense of adventure and and like, all of that stuff. And there's also some of this in Tokyo Godfathers, um, but this movie uses it specifically to replicate like dissociation, right? Like, and just, like, being unsure of what's real and what happened in the past and what's happening now and, like, like creating this disorienting sense of unreality that is so effective in a horror context. And on top of that, like, it takes such great advantage of the medium of animation, you know? Like, yeah, um, yeah. I've brought this up before, but... Um, the now defunct YouTube channel Every Frame of Painting did a video essay about Satoshi Kon's editing uh, many years ago now, in like 2014. Um, and and that, that video was actually how I became aware of Satoshi Kon's work. Um, and in it, um, the, uh, the uh, Tony Zhao, the creator of Every Frame of Painting, he talks about um, how you, how like, there, he uses some examples, but like you can talk, talk about how like Satoshi Kon can edit faster than you can edit in live action because you can literally draw less on the screen. Mm. So to draw the audience's attention to whatever it is that you want to see. Um, whereas, so like, and he compares similar shots between Perfect Blue and Black Swan actually in order to make a point no, he actually compares Millennium Actress and Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Um, just like a specific similar shot. Like there's a, there's a bit at the beginning of Millennium Actress where um, the like camera guy gets hit in the face with a bag. Uh, and there's a shot in Black Swan where like the camera gets a pillow put over it. <laughs> 
Um, and the Millennium Actress shot is, su- is substantially shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, because what Con can do is he doesn't even, if you like go frame by frame on the scene of the bag flying towards the camera there's nothing in the shot except the bag uh, he doesn't draw a background at all so your eyes only have one thing to look at so we can put it on the screen for less time uh, um and there's another comparison of like um an insert I, I think it's an insert shot from tokyo godfathers with uh some other insert shot i forget what it's from and like the insert shot in of like a character like picking up an item and then the camera shows us what the item is and shows us them putting it in their pocket is like the the shot comparison mm-hmm. and it's like in uh tokyo godfathers it just happens so much faster because you can just draw less and because what the there's an i think it's in another every from a painting episode uh or, or video essay where he says um something that stuck with me ever since which is that what a film director really directs is the audience's attention Mm, Um, you know and like what con can do with animation is draw on the screen exactly what he wants you to be looking at um and use and put less and this is something that drives me nuts about a lot of more recent anime that use like physically based rendering 3d pipelines is that you're not you have so much less control over what is on the screen yeah yeah yeah. um when you're using high resolution textures being run through physically based lighting simulations and stuff like that in order to create backgrounds and stuff like that like you are creating so much visual noise that makes it harder for you as the director of the show or of the movie to control what i'm looking at yeah because everything is like this is something that i complained about when we talked about the rebuilds of evangelion um about the re- the way that they redesigned ramiel like he's super shiny now and it's uh like divides up into like a million little pieces that are like physically simulated particles and stuff like that and like all this stuff that you can only do on a computer and it's just objectively worse than the way that Ramia looks in the original show because it's so much noisier, it's so much harder to look at, it's so much harder to get a sense of what it is that you're looking at, whereas Ramia in the show, it's a big blue octahedron. It's terrifying. He's a lad. Yeah. He's a scary-ass lad. An absolute unit. Uh, anyway. Uh... Yeah, and then Kona also does stuff like this all the time, like this kill scene where he'll cut from, like he cuts out what most people would consider the important part, which is him, which is the screenwriter actually getting killed, and just shows us the gory details afterwards. Yeah. He shows us the buildup, cuts away, and then we get the blood afterwards. Um, you know, or like there's shots in Paprika or in Tokyo Godfathers where. Um, like in Tokyo Godfathers, like when they find the key uh, to the to the locker with all the stuff in it at the beginning of that movie, uh, what, whatever her name is, uh, the younger girl uh, in the group, she like picks up the key and then it cuts directly to them like opening the locker. Like you would expect, or she doesn't even pick up the key. It shows the key and then it cuts to them opening the locker. Mm-hmm. Like you would expect it to show her like, taking the key and like putting it in her pocket but it doesn't it just like we've seen the key yeah, we know that yeah, she's gonna take it we don't, don't, don't have to waste time you don't need to yeah um you know and there's stuff in paprika like in the scene where um uh paprika and uh whatever his name is meet up in that like virtual internet bar 
uh and like they like or like the waiter comes over and they don't like order their drinks or anything like that it just cuts directly to them clinking their glasses together um anyway um so yes yeah, so now suddenly there's this there's been this murder um and there's these rumors circulating that um uh takao shibuya is his name uh is his, oh, his okay. creator's name um and <laughs> the, the subtitles that i have um are showing this news report that says popular scriptwriter slaughtered the victim Takao Shibuya police say Shibuya was stabbed umpteen times with a sharp <laughs> that, object those are my subtitles too <laughs> umpteen times yeah and then uh, so yeah so Mima is like driving to the studio with um, Tarakoro and is like and she's like hey what about that murder that just happened and Tadokoro is like, oh, you think the mail bomb that we got is connected to that? You watch too many TV <laughs> tabloid shows. It's compl- Don't worry about it. It's completely normal to receive a mail bomb and then for the screenwriter to also get murdered. You'll never make it in TV. You can't get used to a few mail bombs. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, he just laughs, laughs it off and she's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then she hallucinates idol Mima in the car next to her. Oh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, and the idol Mima says, serves you right, and then drives off. And then Mima literally just, like, opens the door and gets out of the car <laughs> in, like, the middle of the t- this highway tunnel. Fortunately, yeah, they were, they, I think they were stopped, but... <laughs> yeah, I think they were in traffic. Um, Could have been bad. And then we get another scene of uh, Mima where we, we see... It's, it's intercutting between uh, a performance of uh, Cham... And they're doing a performance, and there's like these rumors circulating that Mima's gonna appear because that's what uh, Mima Mania posted on the Mima's Room blog. Oh, yeah. Um, and Sham, um, and so the, they're talking about like the, the, the two remaining members of Sham are like, oh, that photographer that she's getting photographed by specializes in getting people to strip. Um, right. And then we get the, the cutting between this photographer doing what he does best and getting her to get completely naked um gradually over the course of the photo shoot um while sham is performing and then it's like the reality of this is unclear of like mima idol mima appearing on the stage and then people going nuts and like this sort of cutting back and forth between like her current like tarnished existence posing nude in a magazine and her like idealized pure innocent existence performing <laughs> for her fans where she's supposed to be right i mean yeah the, the, like it has a, a kind of a holographic quality like when, yeah. when it, whenever mima sees her evil self it, it kind of has this glow around her and then, like, she'll always, like, jump out the window and, like, bounce along the telephone poles. Uh, and so it's that it's she, her appearance at the show has that same sort of um, hallucinatory quality to it. Um, and so so one interpretation is that it's just in uh, Mima Mania's head. Yes, because he's at the show watching. Yeah. But uh. but again, like the the objective reality of the situation isn't really what's important. Because this is about like how yeah. people build a world. Um, yeah, and then we get the scene that Darren Aronofsky stole for Requiem for a Dream. Oh yeah, 
Uh, so yeah, so in this in this article uh, from from Animation Obsessive about what happened with Satoshi Kon and Darren Aronofsky, uh, it talks about uh, Ar- Aronofsky being essentially uh, unaware of how pissed off Kon was <laughs> about uh, having been robbed, and like the specific dynamic between the two of them, which was that like Perfect Blue was made on an extremely low budget. Millennium Mattress was also made in an ab- absurdly low budget. Um, yeah, like let me look up the exact figure because it's it's on Wikipedia, and then I like read like a Japanese in the Jap. It's like cites a Japanese interview that I then like read through. Uh, it cost a hundred million yen. Wow, which is like that's nothing. Yeah, for and especially for an animated movie, like a hundred million yen is jack shit. Um, and apparently it had a budget of one hundred and ten million, and they only used a hundred million to make Millennium Actress. Wow. And and Perfect Blue was also extremely low budget. And Perfect Blue didn't even uh, like recoup its cost, right? Yeah, Perfect Blue. Yeah, Perfect Blue uh, was not. See, so, yeah, the article was saying how like like Satoshi Kon is a brilliant like influential director, but he was like he was never, never commercially successful, successful in his life. Yeah, uh, because he died yeah. young in, in 2010. Yeah, he died super young. Um, yeah, he died at the age of 40 from, I think, pancreatic cancer. I read, I will see if I can find it again. And so with Darren Aronofsky's star continually rising, for him to like yeah. have kind of like built some, like his early films like by liberally borrowing from Satoshi Kon, uh, it's yeah. not just kind of like fanboyism. Yeah. And and like and and there's also like there's tons of other examples of Western directors borrowing from Satoshi Kon. There's a shot in Inception that is like totally ripped off from a shot in Paprika. Mm. Um, oh, you know, I remember. Yeah, I remember the Paprika Inception comparisons. Yeah, um, yeah, and like I remember. Uh, this is not super relevant, but I'll link it in the description anyway. I've read the blog post that because when satoshi Kon died nobody knew he was sick right. he'd kept it completely secret um and then but he he was a super avid uh blogger um and he he maintained a blog and this is like one of the things that we have is that after that meeting with darren aronofsky he was like very nice to aronofsky who then went home being like oh great Kon likes me and then he went on his <laughs> blog and wrote in japanese where aronofsky would never see it about how much he hated him <laughs> <laughs> um, and Khan wrote a blog post to be published after his death right. um, that that was published on his blog after he died, basically explaining like why he never said anything. And it is, uh, I'll link it in the description. It's something to read. Like it's it's not like illuminating about his movies or anything like that. It's just really sad. <laughs> um, it's 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 a yeah. It's it's a it's a tragic thing to read. Uh, you know, uh, and him him talking about his experience, like with living with cancer and and sort of slowly dying and coming to terms with his own death, um, and it gives a lot of insight into like the sort of place he was in as he was, mm-hmm. uh, as, like as as in like the last like few months of his life. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll see if I can find that link that in the in the show notes. But yeah, anyway, so there's this scene where Mima, uh, like is curled up in a ball in the bathtub with her head under the water. Um, and then she screams, uh, underwater, she screams, Bakayaro! Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then, and then, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a scene, uh, it's like beat for beat the same in... Yes, uh, yeah, the scene is exactly the same shot for shot, it is a shot for shot, it's an inspired by, it's a shot for shot remake of the exact scene in Requiem for a Dream. And then also the, 
uh, ass to ass bit at the end of Requiem for a Dream I, is yeah pretty similar. I, I, to... I, I, I yeah. When I was watching it, I was I always definitely I was like I had already been primed by that article and other and other stuff to like be thinking in terms of comparisons, but I definitely was like this has similar like gross energy. Um, yeah, it's it's a similar sort of vibe to the ass to ass bit from the end of of Requiem uh, for a Dream. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've talked a lot about the comparisons between, like, I, like I think, people like people also talk about comparisons with Black Swan, um, because yeah. Black Swan deals with kind of like issues of like identity and and the the main character losing her grip on reality. But I feel like thematically, it's there's it's not very similar. Like Black Swan is much more. Um, about kind of Natalie Portman's character, her like, like I feel it's more about her interiority and like it's about her ambition and like it's about ambition and competitiveness and failing and fear of failure and all of that is kind of what kind of leads Natalie Portman's character to lose her sense of self. Uh, whereas in Perfect Blue, it's there's a, a much more kind of public aspect to it it's a lot like her her sense of unreality is much more because of other people in a sense like her managers the public everyone's expectations and demands on her and it's it's in and i mean she is she is part she lives in society like she like also um she her decision to pivot to being an actress, her own kind of amb- ambivalence about what's going on, her own like drive to, to succeed in this brutal industry contributes to it. But uh, the dynamic of her character's kind of struggle is very different than the character of Natalie Portman in, in Black Swan. And so I think there are like... <clears throat> um, like in, in Black Swan and a lot of Aronofsky's work, they're kind of like, um, what's the word? Not um, like visual similarities and certain like like bits and pieces, but like I do like Black Swan and I and I think and I think in terms of it as a narrative, it stands on its own. What 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 interested me much more was comparing Perfect Blue. Um, to the 1966 film Persona uh, by Ingmar Bergman. Uh, Which I have not seen, unfortunately. It's like, I've only seen it once, and it's it's not a film that is easily kind of parsed out. But the, the gist of it is that there's this, this actress has been uh, admitted to uh, a, like a psychiatric ward because she's like refused to speak or at all and uh the nurse there's a nurse assigned to look after her and uh it kind of chronicles their increasingly kind of intertwined lives and it ends in depending on how you read it as them their personas somehow melding uh and what i, I know bergman did say like like a Jungian analysis would be kind of fruitful 
sort of looking at at its kind of like psychological themes. Uh, but around this part, around where we're at in summarizing Perfect Blue is when they start I literally sit like at least the way it's translated as persona and uh like rather than two two kind of selves becoming intertwined we have here one becoming like splitting off into two and each taking on a life of their own interesting and there's yeah it's been a really i used to know a bunch about Jungian analysis and I don't know oh, yeah, no, don't uh. matter, nothing and there the, yeah there was one shot that kind of uh it, it's not it's not a, a literal uh shot from persona uh Cohen isn't Aronofsky uh but it definitely was kind of similar enough that it struck me it's when um when Mima is talking to Rumi about how she's having trouble understanding who she is and so on. And so uh, it's got uh, Mima in, in perfect profile and then Rumi kind of behind her looking towards the camera. And there's a really striking example of that in Persona as well, that I'm not, that I wouldn't be surprised if it was a deliberate um reference i'll i'll show it to you and um we can we can link it in the in the show notes if you want um but that kind of that kind of dramatic uh one character dead on and one character in in perfect profile and um interestingly like i didn't realize it when i when i first saw this and and um and and made the connection but at the time, I didn't realize that Rumi, how deeply Rumi was involved in the construction of the alternate Mima persona, but um, it has that that revelation at the end of the film lends maybe a little more credence to the idea of this being a, an homage. An homage, not a ripoff, because Satoshi Kon is not Aronofsky. I think, I, I actually think this... Uh... I don't remember where it was that I saw this. Um, it was in some YouTube video where somebody was... Oh, it was in Dan Olson's video essay about Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Good uh, lord. It was in one of... He did a three-part video series about the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. Uh, each one is like an hour long. Wow. Uh, and he talks about... There's a shot in one of those movies that is very similar to this and he talks about how it's a trend and he hates it oh um, interesting see i he talks he talks about how he hates these sort of like very artificial construction so i think it might actually just be a sort of bigger a bigger thing than i a bigger thing than just a direct see, reference to persona but i'm actually not I sure just, because uh, i mean persona obviously shares a lot of themes with right. uh, with perfect blue and i yeah and um maybe i just haven't seen enough bad movies like like Fifty <laughs> Shades to, to um, picked up on that trend yes anyway so yeah so Mima's the photos of Mima nude are being sold in a magazine and Mimania like walks past a bunch of people looking at them in the magazine and decides to buy every single copy of the magazine uh, in order to prevent anyone from looking at her naked right. 
Uh, and there's a, <laughs> a really good shot where he puts all the magazines down on the counter, and it just cuts to like the short little cashier looking up at him with just this this just look on his face. He's just like, I don't get paid enough to deal with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then we then this is where we get the first indication that Mimania is communicating with somebody claiming to be the real Mima. Mm, yeah, uh, and we also see his horrifying office with his computer which is just like covered in pictures of Nima um and he says oh I'll get rid of her um and then this is where we really start to blur the lines between the show that she's in Double Bind and like the movie itself because like the show mirrors the reality in uh a, a sort of astonishing ways um and we see you know it's like this panning shot over the river where um uh mima says i don't know anything about myself anymore and then her co-star who's uh you know playing one of the texts like how do you think you know the person that you were a second ago is the same person you are now continuous stream of memories given only that we all create illusions within ourselves saying that we each have only one fixed persona uh and then mima says i'm scared that my other self will do something that i don't know about and then she says it's all right there's no way illusions can come to life <laughs> Um, and then it's revealed, it like pulls out and it, it reveals, oh, this is the, this is a, on the, on the TV show, but it's like, this is the first sort of little taste. Like, it's pretty obvious that this is the TV show, but this is the first little taste of like, uh, the, the parallels between the show and her, her real and, life. Yeah. And kind of the, yeah, the clever use of framing this, this was another thing that the essay touched on was how often in this film, like, uh, a scene will take place and then it will be reframed to, to show how it what's actually going on yes. like it like it starts with the uh the very very beginning of the opener for the sham show is this weird like super like uh power ranger style yeah, thing super, yeah super Sentai and kind of like thing. it begins just like close in that it, you don't realize that it's like on stage so you think it's like a tv thing that it cut then it pulls out it's on stage and and yeah. so now and and in like the second half so often you're kind of like questioning is this within the show yeah. is this this show this movie does a thing so often where it will show you something weird or upsetting and then it will pull out to reveal that you were looking at it on like a video monitor in a studio yeah. like it does that like three or four yeah, times yeah. um and it, it like it works every time is the is the because <laughs> the, they keep like escalating it in a really really clever way so every single time it happens like the thing that they're showing you is believable and then they pull out and it was on tv the whole time yeah. uh it's so good uh also the essay that we keep talking about is excuse me who are you performance the gaze and the female in the works of uh Kon satoshi by susan napier uh which is from the book cinema anime uh which is edited by stephen t brown uh, we found this because it is the only essay cited in the quote criticism and analysis section <laughs> on the perfect blue Wikipedia article. Yeah. <laughs> That's the standard of research we have, oh, folks. You know it. Um. Anyway, so yeah, so then we get the radio show with uh, Idol Shamland, where uh, Mima goes to visit them on their radio show, like uh, and hang out with them, and, and she sees Mima sees like fake Mima or Idol Mima in like on the radio show, like she hallucinates that she's on the ra radio show, and then um, while while she's standing in the studio, and then Mima gets up and like uh, you know runs out of the hall, and then. Or idol Mima runs out into the hall, and then Mima chases after her after this hallucination down the street, and chases her down the stairs and out into, uh, out into the street where she gets hit by a truck, and then she wakes up in her bed, 
um and and it was all a dream but like what part of it was a dream the part where she went to go visit these people the part yeah. where she the part where yeah, she got yeah, hit yeah. by a truck like what part of this and this is where like it's a bit a little a little later on where she asks like did i really get hit by that truck and this is all just a dream and, and at that point in the movie that might as well be true like that might be, <laughs> that might be the case like at that point in the movie like maybe you did get hit by a truck and like everything since that mo that time stamp of the movie it has just been your personal hell <laughs> uh. yeah and i almost like i almost wish it went harder on kind of the complete breakdown of like the line between reality and fiction uh it 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 it, it kind of at this point, it, it kind of it I know, really but it, but starts by the to end really of the, the by line. the end of the movie, it puts the it puts the the, the jigsaw back oh, together. Yeah. At the very end of the movie, everything's fine again. Um, yeah, and, and like there is an alternate version of this movie where it just like it's a complete disaster spiral. Which and it, 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 that that should, it goes into like end of Ava territory well, at I mean, that point. Where, yeah, like, the, you, I mean also Black Swan is like Black Swan. It you like the viewer kind of gets the gets the um zo- gets the zoomed out frame but at the end um but yeah. like natalie portman's character it's just one spiral into hell um yeah and like yeah this movie is weirdly optimistic yeah yeah that's that's a good way of putting it um but yeah so uh rudy comes over and uh this is the one scene where rudy gives mima something to drink um which is that they come over and they have tea and cake Mm -hmm. and then mima is like holding the thing in her hands and like gets so nervous that she just crushes it in her hands and like the the mug explodes and like her hands are bleeding oh Um, yeah 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 And, and yeah and this is this is where the shot i was talking about comes from yes uh, is is that scene, and then we see Mima. Then, oh yeah, oh yeah. But also, um, yeah. So, so there, there's 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 some there's some uh, jarring bits where uh, Rumi also says after after listening to her talk about whether she's losing her mind or not, Rumi says, "Well, there's no way illusions could come to life," which is what her yeah. co-star said. And so then we get another kind of uh, match cut to back to that scene and so yeah. we start this we, we briefly enter this sort of like groundhog day loop of her waking up uh and then Rumi bringing her tea and cake yeah and then we and then, see and then, yeah, and, and, and then at one point is, i forget we, which like s- cycle Rumi says you should you should stop dreaming soon uh, and yeah we like we imagine at the time of like sh- uh at, when you first see it you imagine it being Rumi being like kind of get a grip like uh, you're not going crazy. Just like, like stop imagining things. Where really, she's saying, stop being this bad version of yourself. Go back to who you really were. Stop, stop this this dream. Like, like wake up and 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 return to what you're supposed to be. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. So she and she starts like reading on the Mima's room blog about like what she did, and she's t- and she's like and she's reading and she's like, oh, I guess I went to Harajuku today. And there's a, there's a sequence where she talks about going shopping, oh, yeah. and she like actually went shop. And then we get another one of those bits where so, yeah, um, so she's she's kind of like in such a state right now that yeah, she's she's relying on on this this imposter to 
tell her kind tell of kind of like the real. basic facts of like her day that she that she has lost the, the grip of yeah and then she we get a, a scene of double bind on tv where the actors are talking about how she fears an imaginary security guard and then doubles that figure with the serial murderer top models and then the uh the the other guy co-star is uh the male lead in the tv show is like but illusions don't kill and then she's like but what if illu- that illusion found someone to possess <laughs> um and then it zooms out and it's actually uh Oh, yeah, here was the bit where I think I was like, I wanted it to go harder, um, or it might be a little further on when when the 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 lead actress is interviewing uh, Mima's character. Is that yes? That's a little okay, bit. Do you want to do you want to wait on that? We'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a second. But yeah, because right, what happens right after this is that it zooms out and it's actually on TV and it's Tadokuro. You mean Murano watching TV? Uh and he gets up because uh, a pizza's been arrived. But, uh, his delivery pizza has arrived. And what I love about this movie is that this is the most brutal murder scene in the entire movie. And it's preceded by us seeing a pizza box that says, Big Body, Big Boy Pizza. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And then Tadokuro Murano. looks at uh, him and says... Uh, oh, you sure are a weird pizza man. Uh, and then the pizza man pulls out a screwdriver and stabs him in the fucking yeah, eye. It's, it's, uh, and then it, go, it goes hard. It goes hard. Yeah, the pizza guy just like stabs him repeatedly and stabs him over and over again. And then Mima hallucinates that she's stabbing him. Uh, well, and this, no, this well, here's, I think this is a match cut to, so, so yeah. at this point, the, um, like the the plot of the double bind the show within the movie has been that uh, Mima's character is now or has always been performing the murders yes and- she's been the murderer basically like it's casting her as like Rumi it, like a combination of Rumi and Mimania yeah. where like she's deluded into thinking that she's a pop idol and is committing murders as part of this delusion um, but yeah, so Mima is filming this scene where she's committing a murder, but is hallucinating that she's actually murdering Tadokoro. Please, it is Murano. To, and Tadokoro actually got murdered. And this se- bit where she's hallucinating that she's uh, murdering somebody and and uh, filming this murder scene is intercut yeah. with shots of with like single frames of her naked. Oh, right. Um, um, and that's oh, and then. Um, and then she she wakes up. Uh, uh, yes, and then because she gets a call. Oh no, it's not Tadokuro who gets killed. It's Murano, uh, uh, who the is yes, the other producer, not her agent. Because uh, yeah, because yes, yeah, he calls her and wakes her up. Says, "Do you hear about this? This this so 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 and so got killed. I'm coming over now. He's taking it serious." Um, and so yeah. she looks in her closet for something to put on and she sees the bag that she bought at Harajuku the other day filled with bloody, the with bloody clothes. Right. It's specifically a, a pizza guy's delivery uniform. Yeah. And so she starts to believe she's, and it, it, at this point, like it's totally unclear whether those are real and she actually committed the murder or if she's hallucinating that they're real and like, 
Uh, and then she goes, uh, she puts pants on and then goes over to the door to answer it because uh, her door just rang. And then, like, the door, like, slams open, like, as far as the, like, chain lock will allow. And, the, like, all the press are, like, outside and shoving their microphones in there and asking her questions. Yeah. And this is when she says, maybe that truck hit me and this is all a dream. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we get, and then she's filming the scene where she's just killed somebody. And she's hallucinating, uh, and then she hallucinates that it's, uh, Murano, and, uh, that he, like, gets up off the ground, and they, and this, this is one of the other things that was interesting about that essay that we were talking about, uh, that it points out that both Murano and, uh, the screenwriter Shibuya, both of them, uh, have their eyes removed. Oh, yeah. Um... As, like, basically to prevent them from looking at her ever yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, You know, because, like, that's the that's the problem that Mimania and, and Rumi have with this is the way, is, like, the sort of leering way that men will look at her if she's naked or if she's in a rape scene or whatever. Like, they have a problem with her being seen in that way as, as sexual and, um, in well, way. Ultimately, as, as being seen like that by someone other than them. Uh, what yes. It, but, but, yeah, the... Um the what they tell themselves and what they and the kind of the um story is that yes. is that trying to pr- preserve her innocence and this is and then there's the scene with the interview where um mima's co-star the the female lead of the show says like oh can you tell me your name and she says oh i'm i'm Mima, uh, can oh, you go ahead? yeah 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 uh and then she says okay and what do you do oh i'm a pop idol no an actress and then it zooms out and then and then it's like oh she thinks she's a new young actress named mima kirigoya uh, and then she's like, oh, dissociative identity disorder. In other words, multiple personality syndrome. All those crimes took place when she was some other persona. Being a normal girl, how she was raped in a strip club. Everything happened as part of her drama series. By doing so, she salvaged her heart. Um, the original persona, Yoko Takakura, no longer exists. By killing and later becoming her sister, the top model, she salvaged her heart. Um, and so, th- yeah, so th- yeah, this is where I was thinking at first that I wanted to go harder because, like, if it 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 completely the first the first this there's basically two versions of this scene. Uh, the first one is kind of like the the lead actress of the TV show interviewing like Mima as Mima, and her case being discussed as kind of dissociative. Um, identity disorder yeah and so everything has been kind of blurred together but then we get a second version where kind of it's 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 a little more clear that like this 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 is um kind yeah. of in this moment it's trying to like fake you out and trick you into thinking oh has all of this been right. like has all of this actress stuff been and, and then they then they do like the real take where she she doesn't use she doesn't use Mima she uses her character's name uh, instead and it's 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 kind of reestablished within the frame of the of the show uh, and and or order order is restored in 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 some degree yeah and so then Mima uh, they they film like the final scene and then everybody's like oh double binds in the can now and they all they all clap for Mima. Because uh, she was in the last scene that they shot, and then they they're all getting ready to go to sleep. To sleep, they're all re- getting ready. To, oh, why did I say that? Because I want to go to sleep. Uh, you, you you know that film crews immediately go to sleep. After. You, ever, you ever shoot a TV show so bad that you immediately go to sleep? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And so then, then the, the female lead of the show, who again I cannot remember her name, and this, this Ari San, I think. Uh, yes, Eddie. Uh, uh, that's, that's a name on this list. There's no description of who these characters are. There's just like the cast, and then they're Japanese and English voice actors. Uh-huh. Which the Japanese voice, the the English voice actor for the character of uh, Sakuragi is Sparky Thornton. Obviously. <laughs> uh. Which is a real baseball ass name. <laughs> anyway, so Eddie says, um, tells her again that there's no way that illusions can come to life, and like, like reassures her that nothing's wrong. And then she walks away, and then uh, Me Mania shows up and punches. There's a great like match cut. It's not like a visual match; it's an auditory match of the sound of the sound of Me Mania punching Mima and the sound of Rumi closing her trunk. Oh uh, right! And it makes you think for a split second that she's been like knocked out and put in the trunk of a car, and then it zooms out and it's Rumi's car, and it's yeah. just a completely unrelated thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, not completely unrelated. I mean, uh, not completely cause... unrelated, but. Um, right, right. But like the conversation they're having is not directly related. Um, and yeah, and so we have uh, Tadokuro talking about how like, oh, she's got a starring role in a video movie. You know, there are a few sketchy scenes, but what can you do? And then we cut back to uh, they're on this. They're standing on the set of the, sh- the strip club set from the rape scene, right. and Mimania is fight is is uh, trying to kill Mima. Yeah, uh, when, I, when when this first happened, I was like, "Oh God, is this the real scene that Cass was warning me about?" I like, I thought the the no. previous one was just like was just like a a um a, a trial run. So I I got real I got real worried for a second. Yes, and so he ha- he has a knife and he's threatening her, and and like it's an exact mirror of the setup for the rape scene where he's like on top of her and he like cut he like. Uh, pulls her shirt open because she's wearing like a button uh, button up shirt and then he's like on top of her and holding her wrist down and like there's an exact like uh, there's like an exact match like in terms of like the exact animation that he does uh-huh. is an exact repeat of an animation uh, done by the guy who's raping her in the rape scene from the TV show um, like he does the exact same gesture um, and it's, it's I don't there's not like it's like a complicated gesture i guess um but it's the same thing and like her head like it's a little bit later uh after she tries to run away and his knife gets stuck in the wall and then she her like head is like hanging off of the edge of the stage just like it was yeah and then uh she yeah and he and he's talking to her about how she's she's a fraud and like oh you did you fool the screen right on that photographer this little mouth you know you tarnished me marin's name um and then, uh, so yeah, he's about to rape her, and then she grabs a like a sledgehammer. I think it's uh, just a regular hammer. Oh yeah, it is just a regular hammer. Uh, she grabs just a hammer and whacks him on the side of the head, and then he's she, he has the weirdest reaction to this. Um, he just like it's it's this moment where he like the re- it, it feels like the reality of the situation dawns on him for like a brief moment. <laughs> Where he's been whacked in the head with a hammer, and it's like, uh, it reminded me of in Cowboy Bebop that episode with the weird top hat clown guy. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Pierre, Pierre Lunaire, uh, and him when he finally gets hurt, 
and has this just sort of like bizarre reaction because he's just like never considered that that was a thing that could possibly happen to him. Yeah, yeah. In that in that that character, like part of his kind of what well, kind of like a character what characterizes his cruelty is that like he doesn't understand it because he's never really felt pain or suffered. Yeah. Uh, at least not as he can remember he's like his whole character is like this tragedy of human experimentation yeah but um yeah anyway yeah i I hadn't thought about that she yeah yeah, she she grabs this hammer from um down at down below the stage and and hits him and then he he just yeah he kind of freezes yeah it's this moment where like the real like uh yeah he free and he makes like a bunch of weird noises and then he falls over dead um, and it, it's, but yeah, he has this like expression in his face and like the way that he reacts indicates that like it goes from being like, cause he says a little bit before then, like you have to follow the script and for him in this like moment, it switches from being like acting out a script to being, oh, I just get hit in the head with a hammer and I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he, like, yeah, he's suddenly, he's suddenly kind of, uh, woken up from his little illusion uh, and is finally kind of understood that like yeah she's a real person yeah at the last possible moment he is he has realized that he that he has deleted himself and then he <laughs> dies and then it cuts to uh her looking over his dead body horrified and then the lights come up and everybody's like all right looks good that's a wrap on, du- uh, on double bind like, <laughs> yeah. like that was uh, yeah the way the the way the match cuts like rewind us back to previous sequences is, is so incredible as well and then it's like did any of that happen yeah is she hallucinating this or was she hallucinating that um <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know like like either option is a is a valid answer and then and, she's and then uh Udumi is like are you sure you weren't dreaming like it's okay i'll, I'll take you back to mima's room she's, oh right because yeah so so it so um rumi has been waiting for her to drive her to like the after party or whatever goes back in to look for her finds her all beat to hell um and so we so we realize oh maybe this time something it actually did happen and yeah she says okay let's get you back to mima's room yeah and like i think not your room yeah, this it, what's interesting is that this this line I think is a it's a bit different in English than it is in Japanese because I was in Japanese ask. in Japanese saying Mima's room would be the way more normal way of saying it because like uh like your room like using a second person pronoun like that is kind of strange in Japanese. It's not unheard of, but it's definitely it's a little too personal and using a third per using the person's name would be more sort of idiomatic Japanese. Yeah, I was um, wondering in English they... it definitely comes across way weirder to say Mima's room when the, yeah. when Mima is the person you're talking to. Yeah, I didn't I didn't go and check to see what like the original Japanese might have been and how it might have been constructed to give a whether it was meant to create a similar connotation uh anyway so yeah so she goes back and then her fish are still alive um and she looks out the window and, and, and she and the sham poster is up yeah the sham poster is up and she looks out the window and the train is going by and she realizes like this is not my room this is mima's room um she because she i think what she realizes is that she looks out the window and that's not the view outside of her apartment uh, uh and yeah. what she realizes is that she's in 
Rumi's apartment, which looks exactly like her old apartment, <laughs> which Rumi has decorated to look exactly like her old apartment. Uh, and then Rumi comes out, except she looks exactly like Mima. Mima's hallucinating that, that Rumi looks exactly like Mima. Uh, and she's wearing this new outfit, this like red frilly dress with a wig. And it's like, oh, it's the new costume. And then we this is where we get the really gross fat phobia stuff, where like you can see in the mirror... Rumi, who is drawn sort of as grotesquely as possible. Um, yeah, like like they make a point of like, like oh she like squeezed herself into this uh, outfit and yeah, um, yeah they yeah, draw it like oh obviously Rumi doesn't you know fit into this outfit like she's not hot enough to wear this outfit. Um, yeah, and 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 it's it's at this point where like we really start to get some of the grossest stuff. There's a bit, yeah, and so so Rumi talks about like, oh, you you keep getting in, in my way, but uh, an idol is always protected by her fans. You know, they listen to any favor I ask of them. Uh, and Mimania failed a little bit, uh, and then me and then Rumi starts trying to kill uh, Mima with a screwdriver and stabs her in the chest, and then but then uh, Mima chokes her. And then in that moment, like, you see her, like, face, like, contort grotesquely, and she, like, reverts back to being Rumi as she, like, falls over and, like, catches her breath, and then she reverts back to looking like Mima. Um, You know, and, and, like, there's a a non-gross way to do this. (laughs) There's a way to do this that isn't, like, the primary way that she looks dissimilar to Mima is that she's fat. Yeah, like you could do something like you could do something along those lines of how when like an idol's perfect mask slips that like the illusion is like in some ways lifted. Yeah. But like do it but the way the way we <laughs> the movie specifically chooses to to do that is by having like by making fun of a fat woman's appearance. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's not like she doesn't just look different from Mima. She looks ugly. Is the yeah. way that the movie wants you to wants you to see it. Um, it sucks. Um, so yeah, and then uh, Mima cl- goes out on the balcony and climbs out of the balcony, and then Urumi is like chasing her with the screwdriver. This whole sequence is is really really it, great. It's what it like it tur- yeah it suddenly turns into an action sequence. Um, yeah, like and then falling yeah. falling down like. A story onto like a onto like a a rooftop a rooftop or running <laughs> running along like fire escapes, yeah, and like screaming that somebody needs to help her, and then Rumi's like, "You're the one who needs to wake up." Um, yeah, and then we get probably the grossest shot in this in this movie in terms of fat phobia is like a shot where we see Mima. Like, cause Mima has this, idol Mima has this way of walking where she's like sort of like floating and skipping along the ground. Yeah. And we see her doing that and then she passes in front of like a shop window where we see the reflection of Rumi sort of like grossly running in a way that's clearly meant to like mock her, like for being fat. And And yeah, and and Sushikan does this a lot in Tokyo Godfathers, um, mm. where Hana, the trans yeah. woman, like whenever, basically whenever they get the chance, they'll have her kind of like in some situation that caused her to like physically exert herself in a, and and they represent it as her like 
in a way that they allow her allows them to portray her as masculine yeah yeah it's this like it's a similar like you could draw a similar thing about like how the like how femininity is is constrains like women and like how only hell i mean how no one can like embody it perfectly but like how fat women and trans women um like regularly kind of fail to meet its like impossible criterion with much more frequency and instead of treating and instead of treating that with like that's a problem with our constructed ideas of femininity like i feel like on some level satoshi Kun gets that but also he he takes the opportunity to yeah mock um women who don't conform yeah it's it's just it's this consistent problem that he has in this movie in paprika in tokyo godfathers not so much in millennium actress he manages to avoid it uh mostly just because there are no fat characters in that movie i'm sure if there were he would make fun of them um mm-hmm. you know like like um he so he manages to avoid a millennium actress but like in in all of these movies he's he just has this sort of obsession with with dunking on fat people like and it's it's just it just sucks it sucks a lot mm-hmm. um yeah so then uh we get one of the first like like the, the sort of first positive like statement of like Mima's identity from her where she says you know i am who i am um right yeah Ru- what rumi says something about how she like is not yeah, she says, Mima. You're, you're just a dirty old imposter. Mima's a pop idol, and she says, I am who I am. She says, Watashi wa watashi Yeah, Mima's uh, like, I don't, I don't care. Like, I am still who I am. Yeah, and then she pull in the struggle, she pulls off uh, Rumi's wig, which, like, breaks the whole illusion. Yeah. Um, and Rumi, to, like, retrieve the wig, like, leans into, like, a the shattered shop window that they were fighting in front of and <laughs> right. stabs herself. And there's another yeah. sort of, like, shot of, like, her ass in the dress that's supposed to be, like, oh, isn't she gross and fat in this dress? Um, uh, as she, like, bleeds everywhere, and then she runs out into the middle of the street and almost gets hit by a truck. Uh, and then there's there's one of the best shots in the movie in this, where after she puts the wig on... She transforms back into Mima, and she has like blood all over oh, her face, yeah. and, the glo- and like th- that's like one of the most iconic shots of this movie, and it's super cool, uh, except for like everything else around it. Um, <laughs> right, like in isolation, it's a fucking dope ass shot. Right, uh, yeah. So she, it, she, yeah, she gets up, she, and she sees the truck coming towards her, and like kind of takes a bow almost. Yeah, she's like hallucinating that it's like stage lights. But I yeah. think. Um, and then Mima, Mima saves her and pushes her aside, and then the guys in the truck stop and are like, "Call an ambulance!" Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then we get the ending where Mima so, is visiting. Wait, hold, hold on. So, so there's so so this so during this scene, Dawn has been um, night has been turning into dawn, and then uh, at the end, right after the, after she, um, she saves her from getting hit by the truck, and the there's a shot of like the Tokyo skyline at dawn. It almost looks live action. Does I? I did not notice this. Khan is—he's uh, too much of an of an animation supremacist. Yeah, to I think you're right. Like yeah, you're, you're right. Khan <laughs> um, um, is very proud of being an animator, and he's very proud of what he can do specifically in the medium of animation. Yeah, which that, is one of it, the things that I really like about it. Yeah, and looking at looking at this movie, like 
is a complete testament to that. Uh, yeah, like in in that uh, Susan Napier essay, uh, she talks about how like many critics gave it the ultimate backhanded compliment of saying that it almost seemed like a live action. Movie. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think like what Khan's work, all of his work feels like is it's like it is an assertion that animation is not like he, he doesn't fetishize live action. He's not imitating live action. He's not imitating reality. He is doing stuff that you can only do in animation. He is asserting that animation is every single bit as valuable as live action film. Yeah. Um, you know, and you see that across all of his work, like, not only him taking advantage of the unique qualities of animation, but like j- jumping across so many formats and genres and, and like basically making a case that like all of this stuff, the sci, the sci-fi, the real, the realistic stuff, the sci-fi, the fantasy stuff, like all of it is just as valuable as, as the live action films that win all the awards. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things about him. But yeah, something at the ending where Mima is visiting Rumi in the hospital uh and they talk about how like she's she's like sort of fully inhabiting the mima persona um and then uh mima goes out to her car and then looks into her rear view mirror and takes her sunglasses off and goes nope i'm real oh yeah because so, so 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 as she walked out some of the nurses were whispering to each other it's like is that is that mima uh, she, what, would she, what would she be doing here? Oh, it must have been just uh, a lookalike. Yeah, yeah and, then, and then she looks, uh, she looks at her like self in the mirror. And it's like, <laughs> oh no, I'm real. Yeah, Credits. and and it's it's such it's just a, such a tonally bizarre, especially like her like the specific shot, like the last two seconds of just like her looking and taking her sunglasses off and smiling <laughs> into the, yeah. the rear view mirror are just like they feel like they're from a completely different universe than the rest of this movie. Yeah, like <laughs> um, the the essay had like an, in in the in the previous uh, couple of shots it. it had some interesting things about how um, the nurses don't know if it's her, and more importantly, her sunglasses are com- look completely opaque, suggesting yeah. that she's finally kind of got control over her image. Uh, yeah, and so in in that sense, like her looking in the mirror is kind of like her choosing to exert the her own gaze on herself. Yeah, I guess, but but the way yeah, but the way it's done and like the tone of it is is, is bizarre. It's, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's co- yeah, it's out of control. It's like um, it's she, uh, Mima's just like fuck yeah, I win, you all lose. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... <laughs> after what we just after that after that movie. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but like, and, and I do kind of like this ending for its optimism in the sense that, like, it's. Like, yeah, I mean, we were talking about Black Swan, how it how it just is a descent into hell until, um, like, Natalie Portman is destroyed by her own performance, and so it's and so it's it's nice to get a sort of psychological thrill like that that doesn't that isn't kind of an inevitable spiral. Yeah, and like her gaining control over her own image through those like last sequences and like her recognizing she is herself and like this i mean it it does sort of feel it reminds me specifically in the use of reflection imagery of the last episode of neon genesis evangelion Mm. uh where shinji's in that like mirror reflective room and he uh talks about how like he is you know he is the only person who knows himself and like he is himself and he wants to exist and then he like shatters all the mirrors and everything 
uh, and then like the, the clap, thing clap. explodes and everybody goes congratulations yeah. um, like there's definitely some overlap there um, yeah. in, like it's especially in, like in terms of like the, the use of like the reflection to indicate like gaze and like defining oneself by how you see yourself rather than how other people see you you know like and like from the very beginning of this movie like when she's talking on the phone with her mom and her mom is telling her like oh here's what i think about your career decisions that you've already made um you know like she's just bombarded constantly by other people's opinions of what she should be doing and it's like you know i think it's really easy to read this movie as a criticism of the way that like the entertainment industry treats women and it definitely is that but i think it's it it can be broader than that because like women in general like in japanese society but in society in general are just like constantly bombarded by other people's opinions about like what you should be doing with your body what you should be doing with your life you know and like especially like the way that your parents like butt in and are like oh well because i changed your diapers 20 years ago i can i have like that gives that qualifies me somehow um to to make decisions about your career in the entertainment industry like and all of that and all of that shit and like her eventually coming to this to this decision that like no like i and and it working for her like her being famous enough for the nurses to like recognize her you know and like because like and, and and entirely on her own terms of her deciding for herself what she wants instead of just right. accepting what other people right. want and accepting like because like there's a there's a bit where she when she uh like talks about how she regrets doing the when she sees that her fish are dead and she freaks out about regretting doing the rape scene and she falls over on her bed and she cries and she says of course i didn't want to do it i just didn't want to let down all of the people who'd worked to bring me here and right. i think that's that's a it's an attitude that it's it, it exists in the in the u.s i think but it, it's extremely encouraged in like japanese people and, and japanese women especially like young japanese women like their parents and 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 like having this sort of culture of like like the people who brought you here like your parents brought you here like all of like your you know your teachers or whatever like all of these people like you owe them something because they did this thing for you that you didn't even fucking ask them to do um you know where and and like i think it's it's one one thing that i want to be careful of is i don't want to paint obviously and i try to be very careful about this is i don't want to paint japanese society monolithically because it's just a bunch of people um and and like one thing that i think is is interesting and important is that like this movie is commenting on and commenting against this prevailing I- idea in in japanese society you know like and it's 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 something that i i thought about a lot when i was reading uh the my lesbian experience with loneliness and my solo exchange diary mm. uh comics because that's a sort of arc that um uh nagata kabi goes on in her like she struggles a lot in those comics with her relationship with her parents you know and like moving out of her parents house and her how she imagines her parents as as oppressors versus how she imagines her parents as people who did a lot to be there for her and support her during difficult times and like her complicated relationship with her parents and it doesn't like go it doesn't because these are like diary comics and they don't like they don't have like a narrative like they don't have like a narrative that's like planned out they're just like stuff that nagata copy thought about her own life 
Yeah. Um, like they have that sort of, but like it's, there's definitely, I think a relationship there that causes me to want to read perfect blue as not strictly about the entertainment industry, but also more broadly about like the relationship that people have with people in their lives who feel owed something and mm. owed control over them yeah. because they did something for you because yeah. they helped you come up in this world like because either because they raised you as their parents or because they were your mentor or because they like helped you at some point in the industry in like the industry that you work in or whatever and like you coming to the conclusion ultimately like you don't owe anything to any of those motherfuckers and even even more broadly of how like um like fans yeah g- gain a sense of put like entitlement ownership. Yeah. and ownership over over idol specifically but but like celebrity performers generally and how they feel like they have some right to dictate what that person does yeah i think it's easy if you're american to watch this movie and to think that it's a criticism of japanese idol culture specifically and to like avoid any sort of self-reflection about your own culture because the the fact that it's about something so distinctly japanese as pop idols allows you uh, like to have some distance from it and be like ah it's really that shit's really fucked up over there in japan good thing everything's perfect in america yeah i mean let me look Um, at look at like twitch culture oh yeah Uh, if if you want a real a real obvious example yeah and, and like yeah and it goes all the way up and down from you know the biggest celebrities and like people you know who obsess on twitter over like taylor swift or ariana grande all the way down to people who obsess over you know people who make very long youtube videos <laughs> uh, you know like yeah like and it, and, it, 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 and it affects all this this stuff and like yeah there's just there's so much to this movie and that's really all i ask is that like i can is it like it's so rare to find in in this day and age to find <laughs> anything at all it's been that, tw- it's 25 years old now though <laughs> yes uh when i say this day and age i mean in the past 150 years okay um uh, to, to find anything at all to that like is it worth talking about this much yeah or like that supports more than one reading mm, at all yeah you know like this is one of the things that i loved about pathologic is that like mm-hmm. pathologic is about a bunch of stuff yeah you know yeah, yeah. whereas like most of the time because artists and like tv studios and movie studios and video game studios and stuff like that assume that their audiences are stupid they when they make if they want their movie or their show or their game to be about something it has to be about exactly one thing and it's about that exactly one thing in the most sort of obvious straightforward way possible and there's really only one way that anyone with any media literacy could possibly interpret it yeah um you know and like and looking at the Wikipedia for personas, <laughs> the film's exploration of duality, insanity, and personal identity has been interpreted as reflecting the Jungian theory of persona and dealing with issues related to filmmaking, vampirism, homosexuality, motherhood, abortion, and other subjects. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It's about all those things. Yeah. But yeah, uh, we have... Do we want to do the email first, or do we want to do... Uh, the Nine Delights. Uh, let's do our Nine Delights. Okay, walking around. 
And I mean, not much except for the, the chase scene at the end. Yeah, there's not a ton of walking around in this movie. It's a lot. There's a lot of driving and there's a lot That's of true. standing around. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Two out of five. All right. Because uh, that chase scene is real good. It, it uh, is. Fellowship. There is no fellowship in this <laughs> negative, movie. Negative. Yeah, negative. That's, that's a zero out of five. <laughs> uh, deliciousness. There's also no deliciousness. Except for that movie. little bit of cake that Rumi brings. Yeah, I guess one out of five cause yeah. for the cake. Yeah. Uh, transcendence. That's. I feel like that's a five. Oh, yeah. This movie yeah. transcends everything. <laughs> it, 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 it is... Yeah, it's it's transcendently beautiful. It is it is transcendently complex and and interesting and fascinating, and it transcends so many assumptions that you might have about its subject matter and its opinions on things. Yeah, it's so complicated. Uh, goofing. Uh, there's big body, big boy pizza. That's true. Which is pretty funny. Um, there are a couple of things in this movie that did make me laugh. Yeah. It's not a funny movie overall. But it, there are a couple of good jokes in this movie. Yeah, specific. I, I specifically cracked up at the like, oh, who's the killer? Like, oh, I can't tell you. That would be a spoiler. You really got to do something about the killer. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was really, that was really, good. really funny. I don't know. Two out of five. Yeah, that's fair. Two, two and a half, three. Amelioration. Two. This movie ameliorates astonishingly at the end. Five point five out of five. Yeah, there's there's an astonishing let's, amount of amelioration. Let's get ameliorated. Co- yeah, coitus is an interesting category. <sighs> I mean, simulated coitus of the worst variety. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is how did how did how do you how do you how do you address? That? Yeah, so there is erotic imagery in this movie that is used very well. Um as condemnation of the movie's principal sort of target of the entertainment industry. And some of that is simulated rape. I don't know. <laughs> like, we, we need, like, a special, like, flag for this. Uh... And imagine... Uh, we're gonna put a question mark there. That, that works. Because, holy shit... Yeah. Uh, enthrallment. This movie's enthralling as fuck. Oh yeah. Yeah. And like it's, it's a it's a crisp eighty one minutes. Yeah. It's it's short. It's sweet. It's it's every second of it is entertaining. Like it doesn't waste any. T- it doesn't waste any of your time. Uh. Anyway, Alex, what's your wild card? Oh shit. Oh right. Um. Jungian. Jungianism. Uh. Four out of five. <laughs> uh. What is mine? Uh, oh yeah, for deliciousness, there's also in addition to cake, there's big body, big boy pizza. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go with. Uh, <laughs> I think the yeah. Yesterday we uh, yesterday last month we also did. I mine was also trains, which I wish that I could do trains again uh, because there it. are some fucking great. Fuck it. Trains four to five. Uh, because the trains in this movie are great. There's a lot of great oh, yeah. exterior shots of trains. There's a lot of great interior shots of trains good high quality train content which is really all i ask for in a movie um anyway so yes so we have an email oh, yeah. uh we have an email this uh this month uh it is from sunday who writes hello jerks long time listener here since the episodes i want to say uh i was the one who recommended city of courts thank you city of courts is a great book and i do remember that it was you who recommended it yes 
so she has uh, two questions. One, I was wondering if you have any recommendations for podcasts that are particularly analytical, academic, literary, or just friends of the show. I remember a glowing recommendation for the Great Gundam Project a while back. So this is a question for me because <laughs> you don't listen to podcasts. I, 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 I can't even recommend this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you've never listened to this podcast. Uh, so yeah, so I will say... Uh, so yeah, the Great Gundam Project I did recommend. Uh, it's a great show. And then everything that Abnormal Mapping does, uh, the network that does the Great Gundam Project, the Great Gundam Project is their $1 Patreon reward tier uh, thing. Uh, so you can you can give them a dollar, and you should, because they deserve it. And then they also do a monthly podcast called Abnormal Mapping, uh, where they it's a video game book club, book club podcast, very similar to what we do here, but about video games. Uh, it's actually a pretty big inspiration for me, at the very least, in terms of doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, everything that they do is is pretty great. They have a podcast about uh, specifically Studio Ghibli movies called uh, Suddenly an Aeroplane. Uh, they have a po- I, they have a, a very infrequently updated anime podcast called Your Uncle's Beach House. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have they have a visual novel focused video game podcast called Novel Not New. They have a movie podcast mm-hmm. called Repertory Screenings. Um, yeah, they have a, they have a bunch of stuff and all of them are good because, uh, yeah, all of the people who, who do stuff there are, are great. Uh, highly recommended for everything that abnormal mapping does. And, um, I would say, uh, thinking about like analytical podcasts, I guess I have a video game podcast recommendation, which is the, my, so for a very long time, I was a big fan of the Idle Thumbs podcast. Uh, it was my favorite video game podcast. Uh, but the Idle Thumbs podcast stopped updating several years ago because uh, Campo Santo. So all the people who were on Idle Thumbs uh, worked at not all, not all of them. Jake Rodkin and Chris Rimo worked at Campo Santo, and then Nick Brecken worked at Telltale Games. Telltale Games doesn't exist anymore, and Campo Santo doesn't exist anymore. And so all of them were sort of scattered to the winds, and they have not reconvened to record additional podcasts. So my replacement. Uh, video game podcast is uh, Insert Credit, which is a very good video game podcast hosted by Alex Jaffe, Brandon Sheffield, uh, Tim Rogers, and Frank Cifaldi. Um, and they, it's a sort of, it's a sort of light uh, show where Alex Jaffe comes up with a bunch of questions to ask the other hosts and any guests that they have, and uh, they. Uh, have like six minutes to answer them under penalty of a horrible buzzer. <laughs> um, it's a good, it's a good show, and it keeps it keep that keeps the pace up, and they have a lot of interesting guests on. Um, and all of them have so like uh, Brendan Sheffield is a game designer. Uh, he runs a indie studio called Necrosoft Games. He made uh, Gunsport and Oh Dear, uh, and uh, is is a cool person. Um, and Tim Rogers is a uh, freak of nature who uh, does video essays at youtube.com slash action button and used to do video stuff for Kotaku and used to run a blog called Action Button um, and designed the games Video Ball and Ziggurat. And then Frank Cifaldi is the uh, founder and director of the Video Game History Foundation. Um, and he's also worked on the... Uh, he worked on like the SNK 40th anniversary collection and stuff like that Uh, and some other like video game history historical video game collection anniversary stuff 
Um, and then Alex Jaffe is some guy. Uh, he writes. He writes about comics. Um, yeah, and then they have they have a lot of interesting people. So, so and it's the same sort of thing that I really liked about Idle Thumbs, which was that Idle, the people at who did Idle Thumbs were all in addition to being writers and critics of games, they were also game designers and stuff like that, which provided a really interesting perspective that a lot of other video game podcasts don't have. Um, so yeah, I would re- I definitely recommend Insert Credit. Um, and then let me look at my my podcast. Let me look at pocket casts here. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I can also recommend the history of philosophy without any gaps, uh, which is a very lengthy podcast. It's exactly what it says on the tin. It's a professor. He's a professor of uh, a guy named Peter Adamson. He's a he's a professor of philosophy, uh, specializing in the history of philosophy, and he aims to do an episode covering every single idea and philosopher in history without any gaps. Uh, and he's currently uh, he's currently on Copernicus is is the, what the most recent episode okay. is about. And so he starts with he starts with like the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers. Uh, I've been listening to this podcast for quite a while and I'm currently on like medieval Muslim and Jewish philosophy. Um and like the episode that I uh, am currently in the middle of listening to is about illuminationism. All the episodes are about twenty minutes long. They're entertaining. Uh, Peter Adamson's sense of humor will either drive you insane or will be very charming. It's very pun based, <laughs> uh, and it's very uh, he he has he has sort of running gags where he uses the same sort of set of examples of illi- to illustrate uh philosophical concepts so he always uses like buster keaton and giraffes whenever possible to illustrate philosophical concepts uh yes and then i can also recommend i don't listen to this podcast anymore but it's not because it's bad it's because it was too stressful uh which is citations needed which is a podcast about it's a podcast hosted by noted noted Twitterers uh, Adam Johnson and Nima Shirazi, and <laughs> they talk about uh, they like. It's a podcast about the way that journalists and the media in general talk about political issues mm. um, and talk about politics in the news. So it's it's That's sort of that sounds, analysis. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, it, it's like, and they also on their Patreon they do like. A sort of like newsier show um and yeah it's it's it is a great podcast they are very thorough very thoughtful they have great guests on and they talk about a, a huge variety of really interesting topics uh it's just it's a lot <laughs> um yeah and then the last one that i'll recommend i guess is the bbc radio 4 podcast in our time uh, which is a v- extremely long-running podcast. It is. It's the most BBC shit. It's the most BBC Four shit. It's just a <laughs> bunch of academics talking about. Um, so like every. So like it's hosted by this guy named Melvin Bragg, uh, who's just a very old man, uh, and he invites on every week a bunch of academics to talk about some subject. Like, literally anything. So, the recent episodes uh, were about uh, Peter Kropotkin, Romeo and Juliet, Walter Benjamin, the temperance movement, uh, the gold standard, the poetry of Thomas Hardy, uh, the Hittites, A Christmas Carol, the May 4th movement, 
um you know the battle of trafalgar uh like just all sorts of stuff in here like and he'll just bring on just like three academics to just talk about this stuff and it's pretty dry i guess like it's not funny or anything like that but it is incredibly informative and really interesting so yeah that's that's another one i'll recommend is is the bbc radio 4 podcast in our time um anyway anyway the second uh the second (laughs) question is i forget if you were asking for these or not but so forgive me if i'm wrong but as for anime recommendations i don't know if we've ever asked for these but definitely like if you have any recommendations for anime that you either want to hear us talk about or think that we would like uh send them to the email inbox do keep in Uh, mind though that last time that happened we watched kaiba yes but that kaiba episode was really funny (laughs) true true i suffer for your entertainment (laughs) um so yes so yes sunday recommends uh alien nine which i've never heard of so I'll, i'll definitely look into that uh yokohama yokohama kadaishi kiko and quiet country cafe you had something to say about yokohama kadaishi kiko uh, well, right i've re- I read i read like the first like 10 chapters or so of the manga uh it's like a it's like a post-apocalyptic slice of life mm. um and i feel like if like if i found it a little more charming i could probably really get into it uh, but it's not it it doesn't quite do it for me. At least the manga didn't. Um, but mm. like, I definitely see the appeal, and I like I I like a lot of the ideas that it has. Uh, it just didn't quite capture my attention. Yeah, and then uh, says I'm also interested in hearing your thoughts on B stars or Doro Hidoro, but those may have seasons in the future. And then says, I have to stop myself now before I unleash a slew of comedy moe anime. Yeah. Best regards, Sunday. Um, so yeah, B-Star. So I have zero interest in B-Stars. <laughs> I, I, will, I will say this. Um, my understanding is that it's anime Zootopia. I don't care. Um, I have heard some stuff. I have seen some friends on post-deranged Reddit posts about B-Stars on their private accounts. Uh, <laughs> is what... I know about Beastars. Uh, so yeah, like if I knew more about it, I just, um, it, it's the sort of thing where like if we had a Patreon and people could like pay us to like request a show, <laughs> then I'd do Beastars. But I'm not going to do Beastars for no reason. <laughs> we don't make any money off of this show. I don't get paid enough to watch Beastars. <laughs> um, Dora Hidoro. I have a few friends who are really into Doro Hidoro. Um, yeah, I'd be into It's one of those trying. things where I'm actually not sure that the anime is the best way to experience it. From what I've that's a gathered, good, that's a people people like the manga a lot more than the anime. And I've never read the manga. I, I have kind of wanted us to do on this show, um, oh, to yeah. do manga on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in the, Or like come up with some sort of format or some sort of way for us to talk about manga. Yeah, because uh, that's, that's another reason why I haven't like really suggested we watch girls last tour is because i've got a yeah i'm re- i i can't imagine it's as, it's as good yeah we're both we're both big fans of the manga girls last tour and yeah i, I find it difficult too because so much of and, and it's my understanding that dora dora is kind of like this is that so much of like what makes girls last tour good is the sort of slice of lifiness of it which is rather difficult to capture in a tv show especially 
like Doro Hidoro, like the manga is quite long and the anime is, I believe, only 13 episodes. Mm. Um, yeah. And like a, a 13 episode anime has a difficult time attaining the levels of hangoutitude <laughs> that I have gathered is part of Doro Hidoro's charm. Um, you know, um, so yeah, like I, and, and, and also like from what I've seen of the Dora Dora anime, it doesn't, it doesn't look particularly inspiring, like the mm. animation and stuff like that. Like it looks fine, yeah. but like the manga has a really distinctive style that I think is really cool. Um, you know, and that, and that's something that, that has influenced my, there's a few things that have influenced like my choices for manga and like what we've discussed about, like what we want to watch in the future is like, um, one, I don't really want to watch anything that like the manga is way better or like it feels like the manga is like the definitive one right like like yeah. we've watched some stuff on this show that has manga adaptations or 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 is adapted from manga or has a manga version like we watched utena which has a manga the manga is very different we watched eva which has a manga manga is very different um yes we watched karikana which has a manga and we talk we address the manga in the uh but like and like Karikano and uh, Keep Your Hands Off Aizoken, uh, which also has a manga, oh, like yeah. they they're both sort of interesting in that like we were watching them from we were watching the shows from the perspective of like uh, they were both directed by sort of like auteur anime directors that we had seen stuff from before, yeah. and so we could approach like Aizoken and Karikano from the angle of them being a Yuasa show or a Ano show yeah. and not necessarily from the angle of them being a manga adaptation. Right. Um, you know, so like they have a sort of thing about them that's, that allows us to like sort of grasp them. Whereas Doro Hidoro feels like just watching the show without watching, without reading the manga is maybe doing it a disservice. Um, and, and yeah, and there, there's other stuff like you mentioned comedy moe anime and like, uh, Nichijou has been on our list for a really long time. I love Nichijou, uh, but I don't want to watch it for the show because it's it's there's just nothing to talk about. It's just a funny show with fantastic animation and great jokes. Yeah. Like it's we would, we, would, we would just be like uh, like listing off our favorite jokes to each other. Yeah, it's it, there would be a podcast episode where we just describe jokes that would be funnier if you just watched them yourself. <laughs> And like that's not any good. So like even though I love Nichijou and and would love to do it on the podcast, to like show it's like tell more people about why it's great. Like it's just uh, the format of the podcast is just not set up for that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like that. Um, like when we when we pick stuff, I try to pick stuff that we might be able to talk about, um, and like that, that we have some sort of angle that we might be able to take with them i guess uh and also i always try to pick stuff that i think i might like <laughs> uh i some we sometimes fuck up and we watch we kaiba or carolyn tuesday sometimes fuck up um but i always i never i have never picked a show except for the ava rebuild <laughs> uh, except for 3.0 plus 1.0 that was the one that we went into knowing that we were gonna hate it um and even then i went into it being like it could be good yeah like, prove it, me wrong what, like, please prove me wrong Anno. it could be good um but yeah like i i picked but like everything that we've picked apart from that and i i think you're on the same page here is like i picked it hoping that i would like it yeah I, 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 either knowing that i liked it like perfect blue or 
being like, oh, this is a thing that I'm genuinely interested in and I think I'll like. Yeah, I, I don't try to make myself suffer more than I need to. Yeah. And that was that was something that when we when we started this podcast, like an idea that I had was like, oh, it would be funny for us to watch bad shows on purpose to make fun of them. Like, you know, MST2K or something like that. But like the problem is is that when we started when we first watched stuff that we both hated, it wasn't like the recording the episodes was fun. <laughs> but like you actually have to watch the whole show <laughs> yeah. to record the episode yeah. so, and make fun of and, it, and, and it's not and, worth it. And we've it. got enough of we've got enough of a miss rate anyway that we yeah. don't need to go out. We don't need to like seek out bad stuff. Like we end yeah. like there's not just not enough good anime. We're gonna <laughs> we're, yeah. we're like gonna find stuff that we hate even when there's we're stuff not that trying. people like because on the one hand, like I would love to watch like darling in the franks just to tear it apart <laughs> because so many people like that show and just just i i don't understand why and i want to tell them that they're wrong just want to, just want to um, outside the IBs. Have, a, have, a, have a little chat yeah i just want to talk uh about darling in the franks but like i don't want to have to watch darling in the franks and like take notes on it and then record a whole podcast on it that sucks yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so boring our our spike can only carry us so far. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, thank you, Sunday, for your email. Uh, I hope my answer was useful, and we will definitely investigate those shows that you recommended. And yeah, anybody else, if you have anime recommendations, we can't guarantee that we'll watch them because we might look at them and decide that they're trash. <laughs> uh, but we will at least look at them. Uh, it's not unlike writing us an email where we can guarantee at this stage of the game that we'll read your email no matter what you write to us. <laughs> uh, we will not watch your anime no matter what you send to us. We're not that desperate. We still have quite we still have quite a bit left on the list. Speaking of which, Alex, what are we watching next month? Uh, so this was a good one. So I'm trying. I want to chase that feeling. Oh, I thought you were going to say I want to chase something bad. <laughs> No. Well, I, okay, so so what I'd like to watch is something that was mentioned uh, in the essay and uh, something that uh, Khan wrote for early, which is the anthology called Memories. Ooh. Um, he at least wrote one of the three stories in it called Magnetic Rose. Um, he's he's listed as one of the two writers, so I'm not sure if he wrote one, the other person wrote two, or if they collaborated. But it's a 1985 anthology. Um, I think it's mostly science fiction, but um, I didn't read too much of the section in that essay. But it sounds like it touches on some similar themes about identity and like uh, reality that might might make it good and not yeah, bad this is this is interesting i i have n i have not seen this so this was directed by koji morimoto tensai okamura and katsuhiro otomo so, yeah and then so, the so, screenplay was written by kon who wrote magnetic rose and then katsuhiro otomo who wrote stink bomb and cannon fire yeah, and, and i think katsuhiro otomo was kon's mentor uh, yes, let me look at his Wikipedia page uh, to see what he's done. Oh yes, he directed Akira. Oh uh, yeah. Yes. So which which is in Satoshi Kon worked on? Was he a storyboarder for that or? I'm actually not sure what he did on Akira. 
but yeah, he did work on Akira. And then the other directors, um, let's see what it did. Uh, uh, Tensai Okamura did, he was a storyboarder on Cowboy Bebop. Uh, storyboarder on Sword Art Online. <laughs> uh, he was a storyboarder on Samurai Champloo. He was a storyboarder on, or on High School Host Club. Um, he was a key animator on End of Eva. Mm. He was a key animator on uh, the Cowboy Bebop movie. Uh, what I'm saying is Tensai Okamura is a land of contrast. <laughs> um, he was oh he uh, he directed the opening animation for Tales of Destiny and Tales of Fantasia. Hell yeah! And Wild Arms too. Wow. Uh. So yeah, so, and then Kojimoto did uh, Fist of the North Star. Uh, or he did, he did, uh, he, he animated Akira, and then he he did part of the Animatrix. What part of the Animatrix? I that, need to know. That's, yeah, that's this is extremely important. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a little. There's... Oh, this, he did the one with the girl looking for the cat, and then the. Oh, that one's good. That, that, was, that was pretty good. That was, that was one of the best parts of the Animatrix. Uh, so he did one of the, he did one of the few good parts of the Animatrix. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll be watching Memories, directed by Koji Morimoto, Tensai Okamura, and Katsuhiro Otomo. Uh, and then uh, produced by Studio Four Degrees C and Madhouse. So yeah, cool. Uh, uh, Alex, where can people find you on the internet? No book recommendations. Oh yes, Alex, do you have a book to recommend? <laughs> uh, did you do you not have one? Is that why you tried to subtly? Uh... No, I just no. I actually do have one. I have a great one. Uh, Uh I completely forgot that what we do on this. (laughs) So I'm gonna for the second time. I'm gonna recommend nonfiction. Uh, This is Frame Analysis, an essay on the organization of experience by Irving Goffman. I have read this. It's good. Yeah, I read this on your recommendation. Oh, did you? Uh, And so he kind of um sort of create like was the founder of it's now i think a field in multidisciplinary social science but broadly speaking um it is frame analysis that is is studying how we interpret reality in in the in kind of in various ways and so um, using the using the metaphor of frames as um, as to kind of the the ways that we contextualize and process what's going on um, and how that impacts our understanding of what's going on. So, um, a, like, what reminded me of this was uh, talking about in the film how often the uh, literal frame will change to uh, kind of upset our understanding of what's going on. So in the, like the very opening shot, there's that uh, like superhero uh, scene, which we think is on TV, but then it, we, the frame widens and we see that it's on stage. Uh, and so um, that's kind of just like a, a, a sketchy way of describing it, but it's, yeah, it's a great book. And one of my favorite parts is this multiple page long footnote about the definition of a party. And it's stuck. Yes. This is the context in which you recommended this. Essay, <laughs> okay. Right? Okay. We were having a conversation about 
footnotes and specifically david foster wallace's use of footnotes yeah. and you were talking about how you don't like footnotes except for this specific right footnote. right <laughs> so yeah so he, he's talking about um kind of the the like the beginning and ending points of events and how they're bracketed uh, and then he says, that, a structurally interesting issue arises when the inner official activity is not itself formalized. Some students of parties would hold that things don't start with the advent of the first guest and in many cases may never start at all. Never, as once was said, get off the floor. Indeed, the understanding that late arrivals may overlap with early leavers implies that no precise formal proceedings will be involved and that perhaps no particular inner proceedings are demanded. It is easy to identify beginning sequences such as 1. Hosts ready to receive, 2. First arrival if single or couple, allowing for partial assimilation to host-helper role, 3. Second arrivals providing the first arrivals with non-hosts to talk to, and incidentally with the obligation to talk to persons they might not otherwise spend time with, 4. Arrival of sufficient numbers so that clusters can form, allowing some expression of choice. Terminal phases can also be discriminated, but the mid-game is hard to define. However, F. Scott Fitzgerald, a student of the form, takes Kenneth Pike's position. And he follows this with like multiple paragraphs directly quoted from The Great Gatsby. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so fucking good. It's really great. Um, yeah, frame so, analysis, yeah. Irving Goffman. Yeah. How about you? Uh, my recommendation is also nonfiction, vastly more frivolous. <laughs> uh, so my recommendation is Off the Wall, Death in Yosemite by uh, Michael P. Guglieri and Charles R. Farabee Jr. Uh, this book is... So I got, I got this book for free from my friend Laura. Uh, Thanks, Laura. Who bought it at a gift shop in Yosemite National Park. I've never been to Yosemite National Park, and after reading this book, I will never go. <laughs> And uh, so yeah, she she posted on Twitter about how she was giving this book away to her her local buy nothing group, and I and she she was like I hope somebody wants this, and I was like I want this, and she was like Are you serious? And I was like Yes, I spend ninety percent of my free time reading about shit exactly like this on Wikipedia, uh, and she was like Great, that's why I bought this book too. Um, so yes, so this is a this book is an exhaustive cataloging of every single person who has ever died in yosemite national park God. um it is and it, it contains just incredible stories about all sorts of stuff uh like the entire first and it, it's it's split up by cause of death so the entire first chapter is just every single person who's fallen off a waterfall in yosemite Jesus. um you know and and <laughs> it's it's so good it's so it's horrifying it's it's incredible like i you'll either be the sort of person who will love this book or you'll be the sort of person who's confused as to why anybody would make let alone read this book like i yeah there's there's just so much like there's there's an entire chapter on being killed by animals there's an entire chapter on on homicide there's an entire chapter on like various other kinds of accidents there's an entire chapter on people who were killed by wheels Wow. Like, it's so good. And the, yeah, there's a chapter of all the people who've been killed falling off of walls, all the people who've been killed uh, in aircraft crashes, all the people who were killed by base jumping, all the people who were killed by snow and cold weather. 
Like it's oh, it's so good, and the stories in here are all and like the chapter on there's a chapter on all the people who were killed like in the process of building the park, and it includes it's 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 the least violent and bloody chapter of the entire book because a substantial portion of it is dedicated to a recounting of the politics and like situation of like the founding of Yosemite National Park and like John Muir and like all of this stuff and then like the flooding of Hetch Hetchy Valley which was just to the north of Yosemite National Park and got flooded by the government of San Francisco to provide them with fresh water even though there were other better sites because the governor of San Francisco was obsessed with the idea of flooding Hetch Hetchy Valley and it's like there's just so much stuff in there and it was also very funny for me to read as a person who learned who John Muir was because in the video game Sam and Max Hit the Road, uh, you solve a puzzle by bringing a portrait of John Muir to a lady who grows vegetables in the shape of celebrities' faces and getting a pumpkin shaped like John Muir's face. What the hell? Uh, <laughs> that's a it's an important part of like the pu- the big puzzle in the second half of that game is getting a, a gourd shaped like John Muir. Um, <laughs> And, and and I and every time I read I read John Muir's name in this book, uh, I I would read it in in Sam's voice from Sam and Max. Uh, so if you also have played Sam and Max at the road, maybe you'll have that same experience. But yeah, it's it's so good. It's it's just exhaustive. It's exactly what I want out of a out of anything as a person who spends all my time scrolling through wikipedia lists like list of people who disappeared mysteriously and like list of aircraft accidents like list of controlled flights into terrain like list of like all sorts of shit like that um like a person uh, i'm the sort of person who somebody posted a screenshot of a section of the article crime in antarctica in our discord and i was immediately like oh crime in antarctica it's a great wikipedia article <laughs> this is one of, my, one of my favorites top top tier wikipedia article crime in antarctica uh one uh one of my favorites that i found recently is a list of crimes involving a silicone mask oh my um, god which is is really good my favorite of which was the air canada flight 18 stowaway incident in which a guy from hong kong tried to get into canada illegally by wearing a silicone mask to impersonate an old white guy wow (laughs) um which is is unbelievable anyway yes so if you are that kind of person like I am, you should check out Off the Wall, Death in Yosemite by Michael P. Guglieri and Charles R. Farabee Jr. Also, Charles Charles R. Farabee uh, was a Yosemite park ranger for many, many years, and a lot of the stories in this book he was personally involved in. Uh, so he tell he he gets to give a lot of like incredible detail about like his exact participation. There's a great story during one section about in the chapter about snow, I think where he was participating in a search and rescue and he found, he found like a, a baby duck that had been stranded in the snow and he includes detail about how he put it in his jacket and carried it to safety. Uh, anyway, yes. So yeah, off the wall, death in Yosemite, uh, Charles R. Farabee jr. Anyway, uh, Alex, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, let's see, on Twitter, I'm at done, done, done. 
You can find me on Mastodon, Catalina at selfie.army, selfie with a Y. And I sometimes stream on https colon slash slash trash.cloud. Uh, yes, you can find me on Twitter at profit underscore goddess. You can find me on Mastodon at profit underscore goddess at skeleton.cool. Uh, I also stream at trash.cloud. You can find the video games that I've made at profitgoddess.h.io. I have a I blog at blood.church. Um, and you can find the show on Twitter at Animated for Jerks. You can find the show on Mastodon at Animated for Jerks at skeleton.cool. And you can email us with anime recommendations or anything else, any questions, comments about anything that we've said during this episode or any other episode or any questions, comments, <laughs> anything that you have about any show that we've ever watched. Send them in. Or will watch. To, uh, send them in to animatedforjerks at gmail.com. And remember, there is nothing less important than anime. <laughs> Good night and thank you.